Southern Skies. Online Media. Plane Crazy Down Under is proudly brought to you by Oz Runways, Australia's ultimate CASA-approved electronic flight bag for iPad. Try it free for the first 30 days, ozrunways.com. And by the Australian Aerobatic Academy, the leaders in primary and advanced flight training at Bankstown and Wollongong. See how they can take your proficiency to the next flight level at aeroacademy.com.au. Well, g'day folks and welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under, episode 113 of Australia's Aviation Show. I'm Steve Vischer and I'm here with Graham McCarran and mate, we're not in the studio today. In fact, uh, can you hear that noise behind us? What a wonderful sound. Oh, it sounds like an APU to me and it sounds like we're on a tarmac. Yeah, sounds like a dream job for us, a dream job. Oh, you like how did that, mate? dude, that was so bad, that was so bad. <laughs> yeah, we're here with the uh, arrival of the first 787 Dreamliner for Jetstar. It just arrived and touched down after a flight from uh, Honolulu all the way here to uh, Melbourne. So uh, it has arrived at last. Uh, we were there for uh, out on the runway getting the video and uh, you were there getting some shots of it uh, when it got its water cannon salute. Yeah, water cannon. I tell you what, it's been so windy here in Melbourne today that even though those water cannons were uh, several hundred metres away, I think I still got some of the spray. Remind me of being back in the fire brigade, actually. <laughs> Your kind of thing. I, th- I thought you were pretty pretty quick to jump up and say, hey, I'm going to go and follow the Arfies. Well, yeah, I didn't say it was a bad thing. You know, so, so, yeah, no, it's, it's been a fantastic day out here at the uh, Qantas Maintenance Centre. And uh, we're going to uh, present some interviews, Grant, that we've recorded today, including Gordon Rich Phillips and a number of people from Jetstar, including the boss of Jetstar in this region, which is a bit of a coup for us. Yeah. Uh, That's all coming up later. But uh, before we talk about that, mate, let's talk about all things nautical. And, uh, of course, it's been the International Fleet Review since uh, we last had an episode uh, released. And uh, you've been up in Sydney uh, swanning about on all sorts of uh, warships and all sorts of stuff. Well, it wasn't just in Sydney. Uh, The International Fleet Review started down here in Melbourne when the... uh, HMS Daring came in. It's a first-of-type uh, guided missile destroyer. Um, and, you know, it's actually an air warfare destroyer, they call it. But uh, the Daring, with all its new technology, um, gives the American Aegis systems a bit of a run for their money. So uh, I hopped on board the ship when it came in and docked at uh, Williamstown at the BAE Systems uh, facility there. It's uh, The ship was built by BAE Systems, so a bit of fun for the guys to come in and uh, be in their local group. Yep. representatives here so uh, yeah from BAE systems in the UK all the way down came down here and I scored an interview with the captain uh, he's actually a commander and uh, with uh, the pilot of the Lynx helicopter yep. that they have on board and also with uh, one of their air warfare officers and uh, he took me through how they uh, work it when they've got a, a few threats coming in and the scenarios are in he actually uh, took me into the ops room I wasn't allowed to record or take photos but mate 30 people sitting in the ops room and uh, it's it's amazing it's it's not like a bridge of the enterprise but it's more like a uh, pretty intense IT environment every workstation has three terminals oh mate it was amazing so hung out in there and uh, went through even more and he showed me how uh, like using simulations how the systems worked absolutely amazing 
And uh, yeah, so that was the daring. Yeah, I tell you what, you know, it's such a uniquely British sounding name, as an HMS daring. And then you've got the Lynx, of course, which is synonymously British. You see the Lynx oh, yeah. uh, deployed with their armed forces a lot and uh, really a cool helicopter. So I'm glad you got to look around at that. And there's yep. some good photos that you took that you put up on our Facebook page. I'm sure many people have seen them by now. Yeah, oh, they've been great, mate. I've uh, yet to add them to our Flickr stream, but I'll probably do that in the next couple of days as I load everything up from today as well. But uh, the next thing up in the International Fleet Review was uh, <clears throat> not you and not me, it was someone else. Kathy Mexted, I tell you what, you know, uh, Grant, I, I should uh, probably get over talking about that C-130 ride that I had because since then Kathy's had a C-130J ride, which we still have to get her on the show to talk about. And uh, But uh, she's also been flying up in one of the uh, NH-90s with the uh, Royal Australian Navy. So uh, she's uh, produced a package for us with a couple of interviews. We'll be playing that in this episode as well. You know, she's got bragging rights over both of us now, mate. Oh, she's totally, had more man. military flights than both of us. Yeah, totally. She's, she's had the, uh, the J and she's had the MRH-90, the Taipan. And that was actually the first ever media flight in one of those Taipan helicopters. So she'll be looking for a pay rise, no doubt. Uh, we're going to have to put another zero in there somewhere. Yeah. But, uh, we'll have to go to her, her house with the runway and get her to feed us lunch again. That'd work. That yeah. was pretty good. Yeah. Us and the kangaroos and the runway. <laughs> but uh, so that was Kathy's moment of, of fun. She uh, flew down to, from Sydney down to Jarvis Bay, did some interviews down there, got to watch a uh, boarding exercise uh, where they practice from the water and from the air. Um, getting onto a ship so that was pretty cool for her and then um, after all that we wound up uh, she came back and uh, she was still buzzing from it about almost a week later when I was chatting to her recently about it but the next bit was uh, of course yes as you referred to me swanning around in Sydney swanning around in Sydney and of course you uh, speaking of Her Majesty's fleet you ended up on uh, HMNZS Tamana the uh, Kiwi warship that's right it's uh, one of the two New Zealand Anzac frigates uh, it's a bit of an air defence uh, vessel as well, uh, typically found on picket duty. I had a great time uh, recording interviews with three of the crew of their Sea Sprite helicopter. Yes, the Kiwis have the working Sea Sprite. They can make it work, eh? yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had a great time recording with the crew. So we had uh, leading hand Zach Taylor. He's the, uh, the loadie, you might say. He's in the back of the helicopter, getting up to a lot of mischief there and helping the crew. And then we had uh, Hamish and uh, David, a pair of lieutenants, one the observer, one the uh, pilot. They took me through how they work with the system and the uh, and the aircraft. Absolutely fascinating chat. That was, of course, on the Friday on the deck of Timana. And then, uh, yeah, it's a special audience member, a certain <clears throat> Bomb One. Ah, Mick from the Frankston line. And nice to be able to put a voice at least. I didn't get to meet him, but... Uh... <laughs> i tell you what, mate, he put you up in a luxury apartment up there in Sydney. What a great guy. Oh, totally, mate. He had rented a room at the uh, Shangri-La to get great views of the ships and the aircraft for the fleet review as the ships came in for the official presentation and a mass flyby of all the aircraft. So got to be there for that, videoed and enjoyed, and then came back to Melbourne. And now we've been here for the 787. Oh, fantastic. Well, i tell you what, uh, that's a great description of what's uh, going on in this episode. It's going to be another long one, folks, but gee, it's been a while once again since we put it out. But let's get into it. Lieutenant Hamish Walker, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Oh, thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Cool. Really enjoying it. <laughs> now, you're a pilot of one of the Lynx helicopters here on HMS Daring. Yeah, I've got one Lynx helicopter on board, yeah. uh, and it's remain, the helicopter will remain with the ship for the whole nine months okay. uh, while we're deployed, and we, uh, we fly it with two aircrew, one pilot, one observer. He's like a navigator tactician, uh, and he's actually the aircraft commander in this case, which is slightly unusual. So. Okay, yeah, that... Not- it's uh, quite often the pilot who's running the command. Yeah, very much so. So it's, it yeah. creates a strange dynamic in the cockpit, but it's uh, <laughs> it's really good fun. It's uh, okay. good to have a good crew resource management. And so there's just the one flight crew for the helicopter? Yeah, just one, and we've got, uh, as a minimum, seven engineers to run it. 
Um, in reality, at the moment, we've got uh, eight and one air traffic controller on board. Okay. Um, so we're slightly augmented in terms of numbers. But Usual compliments to any reason for just the, I thought it was normally to, uh, two links, or is it sometimes one, sometimes two? Uh, sometimes one, sometimes two. Depends on availability of assets, simply. Um, and at the moment, they're fairly stretched. They tend to be double manning the ships that go to the Gulf, the Persian Gulf, uh, as opposed to uh, coming around the world. <laughs> <laughs> now, are you going to be taking part in the uh, fly past? On, uh... Yeah, really excited. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly daunting, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. It sounds like there's going to be a lot of aircraft in the sky at the same time. So Yeah, I'm hoping to get up there to see it. Yeah, we're good. So you're flying the Lynx. How long have you been flying that, that aircraft for? Uh, I started flying in training in about 2008, and this is my first compliment job. I started uh, on HMS Daring as the Lynx pilot in June last year. Uh, I've got about 400 to 500 hours on the Lynx now. Not that many. Fairly junior pilot, really. And you kept direct entry straight onto the Lynx? Uh, sort of. I'm an air engineer by trade, so I joined initially as an air engineer and then transferred across to being a pilot. Okay. And so when did you um, like decide you wanted to join the Navy and do the pilot thing? What, what's... Uh, I've always grown up around boats as a kid, uh, so the Navy seemed like the logical choice to go through. And uh, my dad was an engineer, uh, so I sort of fell into the Navy as an engineer, really. Uh, the Navy grabbed me very young age at school uh, and sponsored me through university, so they, they caught me early. And uh, getting to pilot seat of the Lynx, what steps were involved in that? Uh, it was about a three-and-a-half-year flying training program. Uh, it's a long old process, and there's, there's holdovers in between the two courses that you have to do, but you start off on a very light fixed-wing aircraft just to learn the basics of aviation and uh, airmanship, essentially. Is that the Tudor? Yes. Yeah, so yeah, we actually did it on the uh, Firefly T60, TC60, but um, it's now the Grob Shooter. Uh, you then move on to a very basic helicopter, Squirrel, HT2, uh, for all the handling stuff really the basic handling and then you move on to the Lynx uh, operational conversion units where they teach you to fly the Lynx and then fight it more importantly yeah, yeah it's one thing to fly it it's another to use it effectively as part of the team right? indeed <laughs> so what kind of missions are you doing uh, on the daring and in general the aircraft's uh, typical role is anti-surface warfare uh, so we'll either be supporting the ship uh, with long range um, surface search uh, using the radar which sweeps 180 degrees from the aircraft's nose um, just to build up the surface picture ahead of the ship ideally uh, and we also can roll with a, an anti-ship missile called a sea skewer mm-hmm. uh, and again we can be uh, tasked to go and take out units at range the other option we've got is over the horizon targeting so we'll just provide targeting information to the ship um, for them then to take them out and given, given the range of the Oberon and everything on here you must be a fair way away to be able to do over the horizon for them because it yeah, can see quite a distance yeah it's not too bad we're normally our maximum range is about 100 miles um, typically based on fuel do you do much anti-submarine uh, a little bit. We're uh, more of a weapon carrier than a submarine finder as such. We're not fitted with a dipping sonar, um, but we, we're, the idea is that we will be at a very short alert period on the flight deck with a torpedo on the side, uh, and then we'll, we'll run a weapon train for keeping torpedoes in the water. Okay. Yeah, because the ship itself doesn't have any anti-sub. It's, um, so you're, you're pretty much it if, if it's on its own without a, a sub-hunter? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And fleet replenish, uh, like yeah, ship replenishment. Um, yeah, all of the sort of standard yeah. secondary roles you'd expect of a shipborne helicopter. So uh, fetching the mail, uh, <laughs> underslung loads, picking stores up, etc., etc. Um, we also provide the twenty-four hour search and rescue cover as well, should that be required. But mm-hmm. how do you go? Uh, you know, the, the usual thing: landing on a pitching deck. Um, most of us have enough fun landing on fixed ground. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've had one little go with a helicopter, and that freaked me. Yeah, very yeah. small steps, really. Uh, the training's very good back at uh, 
back in the UK but also it's not been too bad all the way across the Pacific has been pretty benign uh, daytime's great it's only really when you get to night vision goggles uh, and a pitching deck that it becomes scary as hell you? Uh, but you just have to <laughs> get it throw it down <laughs> it's, otherwise it's swimming time and, yeah, and a whole so lot of paperwork we haven't got many other options <laughs> <laughs> and do, do you have like the grappling system that allows you to, yeah, to lock in you, uh, you, not like the Americans the Americans have a sort of a wire which pulls them down to the flight deck we land on the flight deck and then put a hydraulic harpoon which attaches us to the grid and that'll just hold us onto the flight deck then uh, I can also invert the pitch on the blades to force my, me onto the deck um, should it be a really bad sea state so. but you still got to get there yeah <laughs> you can't just hover and down type 45 is pretty good it's a pretty big flight deck uh, and the, in terms of sea keeping the ship's really good actually and any uh, where to for the future the Merlin is on your card um, Wildcat really is the replacement for the Lynx which comes into service in 2017 so the Lynx is uh, well designed in the 60s first flew in 72 uh, it's been through several upgrade iterations but it really is coming to the end of its life uh, and we're in the process of procuring the new Wildcat um, the first two uh, variants are flying at the minute back at the squadron just going through trials and evaluation really but they come into service in 2017 so that's a really exciting future really for the Lynx Force Awesome, so, looking forward to that one Yeah, very much so <laughs> Are you able to talk a bit about the differences internally and uh, yeah, like extra range? Or it shares it? a lot of the, uh, the donor parts externally it looks exactly like a Lynx to be honest it's a completely new airframe uh, extending the life from 7,000 hours to 12,000 hours um, and really the big step for us is a huge avionics upgrade uh, internally the radar will be 360 uh, everything will be glass cockpit and yeah. digital as opposed to the links which is still analog uh, so <laughs> a welcome yeah change. it's a big step change yeah, very uh, as much of a conversion uh, how long's the class it's, uh, I don't know exactly know how long the conversion is at the minute by all accounts it's very very similar to fly to a link so I don't think the conversion will take that long it'll much be uh, much more be about learning the avionics really than the handling of the aircraft yeah <laughs> and they've done a lot of things like reducing noise and vibration as well so that's good yeah advances in technology cool saves cool. my lower back yeah yeah especially on a long flight yeah How, what is the um, duration on the uh, typically two hours if we fit an extra fuel tank we can take that to about three and a half okay. uh, but typically two hour sorties same, same kind of uh, durations for a wildcat yeah? Yeah, yeah yeah pretty much identical so. cool thank you very much for coming on the show it was a pleasure Appreciate thank you very time. much Lieutenant Commander Tyler Elliott-Smith, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Thank you very much for having me. Cool. Now, I understand you're um, an operator of the uh, air combat system here. Yeah, that's right. I'm uh, what we call one of the two air warfare officers on board. The uh, reason why we have two is that we can always have a 24-hour capability. We just work about. And I'm principally responsible for the operation of the uh, missile system on board, Sea Viper, um, and also all fixed-wing aircraft under the ship's control. So starting at the beginning, um, we'll work through to uh, the fun part of actually running the system. What got you into the Navy? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good one. I was a, uh, a triumph of naval recruiting, really. I live inland in the UK, as far as inland as you could be uh, for a small island, and I had no naval uh, connections in the family. But really, it was a coupon in the back of a Sunday Times magazine. Filled it out, cut it out, sent it off. And they invited me in to, uh, to go and speak to the careers people. They showed me some exciting videos, and I didn't look back from there, really. <laughs> and what was the path to get to where you're at now? Right, well, uh, that was when I was about 15. So I finished my schooling, I went to college, went to university. Now, all along, I knew I was going to be joining the Navy. And I, I kept up with, with acquaints at sea, etc. We're always with the intention of joining at the end of university. That's what happened. Go to Naval College for about a year. Um, and then you earn your spurs at sea, um, as a, principally as a warfare officer in my branch, on the bridge as a bridge watchkeeper. And then latterly, you specialise as a tactician in the ops room. And uh, so getting into the ops room, 
what kind of training is involved in uh, coming up to speed on all the system? Right, well, the, the bridge is very much an outstation of the ops room anyway because all sensors feed down into there and the bridge is a critical part of that. So you'll have got a good grounding from, from your bridge time as, a, as an officer of the watch or a navigator. Then you go on to your principal warfare officer's course, which is a, a shoreside course for 13 months, and, and you learn intimately all about uh, fighting the ship in all environments. So we're talking subsurface, surface and air. Then you go to sea and you conduct your principal warfare officer time. Um, I did that, and then I further subspecialised as an air warfare um, officer, which is where I am today. Now, um, subsurface, you've got the sonar working away for you there. Yep. And so then you can direct the, um, the links with its uh, torpedo if required, if you've got a, a subsurface contact that's causing you some hassles. That's right. Yep. And then you've got two different styles of, uh, I guess, a surface radar, the, um, the E to G and... I believe it's an I. Yeah, that's right. So we've got two navigation radars. One's an Echo Foxtrot band radar, um, and that's very much commercial-grade um, civilian-type uh, navigation radar. And then we have an India band military navigation radar, which is a higher fidelity and gives us a little bit more. The beauty of having two systems is that they back each other up and we can correlate the picture, but also in a tactical environment, if we are going to be uh, operating covertly, uh, we'll switch off the military-grade India band radar and just go on the um, the commercial one. So uh, any electronic uh, intercepts that may be made upon the ship really don't give us away as a warship at all. We're just a cruise liner having some fun. Exactly that, <laughs> yeah. And then we step up to um, the two big radars. Uh, you've got the Samson, which is up on the top of the mast and the ball. Yep. Now, I understand that's um, like the American ones. It's electronically steerable, but it also rotates yep. um, every like, two minutes. It's, uh, I think it's 30 times a minute, is it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, it's a back-to-back phased array um, rotating at the masthead. It's still beam steerable. Um, and what that really gives us is a massively high update rate and the ability to simultaneously do an air search, scan, target indication and fire control all at the same time with the same radar. So we don't have a degradation in, in air picture when we're conducting a missile engagement. We still have everything available to us. Plus it's also higher off the surface so you get further range to uh, see out to the horizon. Exactly. I mean, the, the biggest fear for, for warships at sea are supersonic sea-skimming missiles. And you need to have a good radar horizon to be able to deal with those in good time. The beauty of, uh, of our Samson radar over heavier fixed radar systems, such as Aegis or Spy, is that we do have it at the top of the mast. That gives us increased uh, radar horizon and, and time, and time is the biggest commodity in warfare. Definitely. And you've also got that large rectangular scanning radar that I, I, that does rotate as well, I believe. Yeah. That's um, your long range. Yeah, that's our long range radar. And it, actually, the, the multifunction radar, the golf ball one that you spoke of just there, that is principally designed to be part of the, the missile um, system. The long-range radar, which supplements it aft, which is the larger rectangular rotating radar, that's very much more of an orthodox radar. So it doesn't do so much of the clever wizardry required to provide uplink to the Sea Viper missiles. It provides a blanket picture. So they complement each other in, in many ways. Yeah, so when you're, when you're doing operating with the radar, as you are saying, um, for the missiles, you don't lose the big picture as well yeah. because you've got that radar supplementing and... and I believe they operate on different frequencies as well, so there's more hassle to try and jam it for their bad guys and so on. Yeah, um, again, it, the Samson radar is, is, is very smart. It's a pseudo-random frequency agile radar anyway, so 
it's it's not immune but it's very very difficult to jam and we've tried to, very hard to future proof ourselves with that what what that really is concerned with with what we would call tiwa threat evaluation and weapon allocation so it will provide incredible granularity for incoming threats to the force it will disregard anything it considers not to be a threat that's the part of the weapon allocation thing the long range radar um further aft on the other on the other mast is simply providing an air picture it's not prioritizing in any way it's just giving you what it sees we spoke very briefly with the commander about the uh the the missiles you've got the two types you've got the the 15 and the 30 i understand it so the 15 is sort of close in the 30 can get out to about 120k or more that's right they they're actually the same missile um the difference being that the aster 30 has extended range it's got an, an additional booster so it's got longer legs the brains inside and the warheads exactly the same the system actually will also select whether we need to be expending a 15 or a 30 depending on whichever nature threat we've got coming in so actually i as an operator do not select which missile goes the system will automatically do that the uh, the 15 um you might ask well why would you have two missiles with one with a poorer range simply without the booster it's it's a far more agile missile um so for very late engagements um we would it would auto select an Aster 15. They self target, they home in, uh, you don't have to continuously send them information, is that correct? Yeah, um, in a way, they are active missiles, but um, using the Samsung radar, we will detect the threat, keep monitoring the threat, um, launch the missile, and provide a missile. Well, the, the guidance to the missile is, is before it goes. Once it launches and it's doing uh, sort of Mach 3 by the time it passes the guardrail outbound, it's, go- it's feeding off. Um, the information that it was principally given then it gets missile uplink information from samson and which steers it on when it's at a range from its target it will go active in its own um, radar head uh, for a proximity kill so they very little time for those who are being targeted to know that they've got it coming down their throat they wouldn't really know to be to be honest with you they wouldn't know uh, in the old days uh, predecessors to these types of ships you'd have an air search radar and then a fire control radar so they knew when they were lit up yep the beauty of this system is you just don't know the parameters of the radar don't change it gives an inc- incredible update rate but that would be indetectable to a, a radar warning receiver you know you're being scanned but you don't know you're locked on precisely yeah. and and the terminal homing on on the missile um, and the agility of the missile is really incredible. It can pull 60G turns. It's got what we call PIF-PAF, which is an ability to sidestep in space. So it's got rocket motors which fire off laterally to sidestep the wow. missile, so it doesn't even need to turn. It just jumps uh, to the left or to the right for terminal Fantastic. homing. Um, I don't think they would have much idea that it was coming. No, no, not at all. That's a pretty impressive kit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, actually... Uh, that's a very good point in some ways because uh, under rules of engagement in the past uh, to use a fire control radar was a was a hostile act mm-hmm. and that in itself often was a deterrent yeah. we don't have that facility now so i as an operator have to be very careful when i'm advising command with what we're doing that we have adequately warned the threat so when i'm advising command we're really trying to avoid any kinetic activity at all um, and if we're firing missiles frankly it's gone wrong because we're, we're here to stop wars not start them yeah it's gone all too far yeah <laughs> we've uh, discussed all the components of the system now let's talk in terms of a tactical perspective you're down in the guts of the ship mm-hmm. in the ops room what's it like down there what are you doing the principal thing i'm trying to work on down there is to keep things calm you have so many sources of information coming in it's 
easy really to be swamped by that information so what i need to do is sanitize and get a clear picture to have the situational awareness to make decisions we spoke earlier about time being my greatest commodity that's exactly the case i need to be able to make recommendations to the captain sitting on my right hand side that are going to be sound now bearing in mind he's going to be looking in all environments so he he is concerning himself with where is the submarine where where are the other um op four surface units located and i'm principally concerned with air warfare on his behalf he needs to have confidence that when i'm making a recommendation to him it's the right it's the right call yeah there's a lot of information going on down there and we've got a lot of guys trying to compile the picture with situational awareness these are young guys as well and girls straight from school many of them and the responsibility they have is is really quite great because if i don't have the correct information i can't make the right decisions it can get frantic but my aim is always to keep it under control so the captain's down there in the ops room with you yeah and he will command by veto in a benign warfare environment he'll be on the bridge typically um, looking after the navigation if it's becoming a tactical scenario he will relocate to the ops room and and then we will start to fight the ship on his right-hand side, he's got a principal warfare officer who's doing self-defence of the ship. On his left-hand side, he has me. And because of the role of this ship as an area air defence platform, um, I'm concerned with providing air defence to the entire task group. And that's the advice I need to be providing him. OK, now how many people have you got working with you? Have you got a team on, on the captain's left and the uh, ship um, defender has got his team on the right? Or Yeah, we do. Um, the ops room really would be manned by about 30 to 35 people. Uh, all sitting down at consoles. They're multifunction consoles, so actually you could re-roll if the, if you took damage in there. You, you could you could relocate, log on, and do exactly the same job in a different position. But on the left hand side, I've got my air team, and they they're about seven or eight in strength, just providing me that picture. Uh, the rest of the ops room be configured either for other spheres of warfare, electronic warfare, or communication specialists. Now those consoles, uh, they're all running that Windows for warships environment. Uh, that we've heard quite a bit about mm. and uh, the captain was saying that's a, that's a good thing because it's making it easier to train people because it's a familiar Windows kind of environment most of them have grown up with. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think there are two real benefits to that. Um, you're always looking for talented programmers to be able to write you uh, the programs for the man-machine interface in there. So my previous experience in, in other ships uh, was that the command system wasn't always particularly intuitive often that was because the algorithms to write the programs were only the knowledge was only held by a very small number of people well here now if you can write a program on windows xp frankly you can do something which could contribute to our command system now how you go through the hoops of actually getting it ratified is another question (laughs) but in but in in concept it's very simple I think the other flip uh, benefit is is actually it is very user friendly Um, and as you say there you know we've got a it savvy generation here now and if it's windows drop down menu driven then they're going to feel more comfortable um, and so that gives them extra capacity to be making decisions excellent anything else you'd like to say about uh, the role in the systems and so on well i just feel we're incredibly lucky really these these ships didn't come cheaply but we've really got an incredible product we're expecting them to to do us good service for 30 to 40 years and we have future-proofed ourselves for threats that conceivably we could see coming but certainly don't exist right now so we haven't built a ship for today um, we've built a ship for the future and it's not just about the air defense more and more uh, we're having to deploy as a singleton unit so the flexibility that this will offer navy command in terms of 
non-combatant evacuation operations or defence diplomacy work. Um, we are self-sufficient in many, many regards. So I'm very excited to be here, and this is really um, the, the best piece of kit I could have asked for. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Tylo. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Grant. Captain Angus Essenhai, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Thank you very much, Steve. It's a great pleasure to be here in Australia. Cool. Now, your technical title is Commander. I am a Commander. I'm the captain of the ship, so it's one of those weird naval idiosyncrasies, (laughs) I'm afraid. A bit of both. Now, I understand you've been uh, in charge of the HMS Daring for a few years, has it been? I've uh, been the captain of the ship since uh, December of last year, so uh, it's all racing by. Wow. Um, But actually, I had the unique privilege of being the first operations officer of the ship when we came out of build. Obviously, we're here in the ship yard here in Williamstown. You can see the sort of frenetic activity of bringing a ship out of build, as you see with the HMAS Canberra next to us, which is uh, currently under construction. Um, and I did the same process, bringing HMS Daring out of build uh, back in 2009. So uh, it's a great privilege to be back in HMS Daring, this time with a slightly different role. Yeah, doing the sea trials and making sure everything was hanging together properly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, it's a first-of-type ship, so I understand there were, you know, as with anything, there's been a, a couple of hiccups and all that, but it seems to be um, running pretty well now. Well, absolutely. I mean, to to have the faith in the platform to bring it um, almost halfway around the world uh, indicates that we've we've overcome any teething problems we had. As with anything, if you bring in a ship which has 80% new equipment in it, there's going to be a few teething problems. But we're pretty pleased with the ship. It's a fantastic capability um, and will serve the Navy very well for the next 40 to 50 years. Indeed. It's, uh, I, my understanding is that it's using windows for uh, warships. Yeah, pretty much. Um, our combat system is derived around the Windows XP operating system, which is not a product endorsement, I promise. But it's, uh, it does give us a degree of flexibility because obviously everyone who grows up these days understands those operating systems. So uh, it really does overcome a hurdle for us in terms of getting the guys to understand how to operate the combat system. Now, in terms of uh, operating the ship as part of a fleet, I imagine it would be... Uh, it would, would you operate on your own very much? The, the ship's entirely capable of operating on its own. Um, that's actually the easiest thing it could do. Um, what, what causes it the headaches is actually doing the air defence role that it's designed around. So that is looking after groups of ships, uh, predominantly the high-value assets, so the ones with the with all the aircraft on or carrying all the fuel. So we would be predominantly sitting very close to a, an amphibious ship, an aircraft carrier, the a replenishment ship with all the tanks on it, providing them with air defence uh, and up to uh, sort of 12 other assets as well. So we could be defending quite a lot of ships at the same time. So you'd be pr- pretty much located in the centre of the fleet. You wouldn't be out on picket duty or anything like no, that? No, we, we, uh, we leave the picket duties to the frigates. The missiles you're running, uh, they've got the 15 and the 30. Yes. So you can do the close-in point defence for just yourself and a couple of ships or all the way out to zone to do the whole fleet? That's exactly, entirely correct. So yeah. we have the Aster missiles, which are a French-made uh, missile, uh, very capable in service with both the French Navy and the French Army. Uh, and as I say, we're new to service with us since 2009, but we're very pleased with them. They've gone through all their operational testing. Um, and they're providing us a great service. Now, you're saying as they launch out of the uh, the, the um, silos on the bow, they're mm. doing Mach 4 by the time they've cleared the superstructure. That's correct. And they're capable of pulling a 16G manoeuvre as well, so they're a very agile missile, um, and uh, I certainly wouldn't have been the plane at the other end <laughs> if, uh, if it was coming towards me. Yeah, I've read a bit about the trials and uh, like the accuracy and so on. It's pretty impressive. It is. It's a, it's a fantastic capability and um, one we're pretty pleased to have in, embedded into the ship. Do you have any procedures you have to follow in terms of uh, visual blindness from the, the exhaust flare on launch and the sounds and so on? Are you pretty well insulated in here? Yeah, we're pretty well insulated. insulated. Um, to describe it to your listeners, quite large windows up here on the bridge, um, all armour 
coated so effectively they're, they're blast resistant obviously we're at quite close proximity to the silos within about sort of uh, 10 metres of it. Uh, it it makes for an interesting event when you launch one everyone looks away for a moment yeah indeed <laughs> I imagine it would be uh, pretty much like daylight at night Indeed, yeah. yeah. We haven't done a night firing, actually, so oh, okay. something something to experience. Well, I'll have to put that on the list. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you're, you're, you're in with the fleet. You're providing all the uh, all the like monitoring everything going on. So I imagine you'd also have a group of air traffic control kind of uh, like bringing people in and out, supplementing if necessary an aircraft carrier or taking over and running if there's none. Is that absolutely? Uh, we we call them fighter controllers. As as you would, you'd give them a more military term. But uh, yeah, the uh, the fighter controllers on board the ship are capable of controlling uh, large numbers of jets uh, simultaneously. Um, we exercise that routinely at the moment with the US Navy because we obviously in a, in a capability holiday for running aircraft carriers ourselves with the Royal Navy, uh, but we have the Queen Elizabeth class coming online in the next sort of two years, which will be equipped with a Joint Strike Fighter, and we're very excited about that capability. In the interim, we've got to train and practice somehow. We do that regularly with the US Navy, operating um, in a sort of uh, air traffic control role for them uh, to keep our skill sets up to speed. Okay. Now the Yanks have the uh, Aegis system, I believe it's pronounced, on yeah. their, their vessels. Yeah. So you'd be f- performing a very similar role? Yes. I'm, uh, I'm quite privileged in this regard because I was the first ever exchange officer in, in an Arleigh Burt destroyer, so I've operated oh, wow. extensively the Aegis system and the capabilities are very, very similar between a, a, a British destroyer and the Aegis class. Okay. Anything else you'd like to say about uh, operating daring? Uh, it's a fantastic ship to operate. We're pretty pleased with it. It's fantastic to build, bring a BAE-built ship into a BAE shipyard for some maintenance, and the serendipity of that is not lost on us, but it's a real pleasure to be here in Melbourne, and we're very much enjoying ourselves. Cool. Thank you very much, sir. Great. Plan your flight. Fly your plan. With Oz Runways. Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full-featured moving map GPS complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways makes the task of creating and submitting a flight plan a breeze and can be a great tool for improving situational awareness en route. Annual subscriptions start at only $74.99, so get your copy today. For your free one-month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes store or visit ozrunways.com. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. Want something different to talk about on Monday? Get yourself a Jet Ride gift pack and tear through the skies at 900 Ks with Australia's ultimate jet fighter experience. Be top gun for the day. Go to jetride.com.au slash PCDU or in Australia call 1300 554 876. As pilots, we're always looking for ways to improve our proficiency and skills. And one of the best ways to achieve that is using a flight school dedicated to advanced skills training. In the Sydney area, that choice is the Australian Aerobatic Academy. From ab initio, advanced handling techniques, upset recovery training, right through to full aerobatic ratings. The Australian Aerobatic Academy provides thorough and professionally delivered courses to suit every pilot. And with bases at Bankstown and Wollongong, they've got Sydney covered. Go to aeroacademy.com.au to find out more or call 0404 065 201. The Australian Aerobatic Academy, taking your proficiency to the next flight level. 
Lieutenant David Roderick, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. It's great to be here. Well, we're standing on the flight deck of uh, Tamana. This is uh, your main landing pad. You're the pilot of the Sea Sprite. Pretty much, yeah. The New Zealand ships, we only will take one helicopter to sea. So there's only one hangar, uh, one aircraft, and generally we'll only have uh, one uh, one pilot amongst the three crew that'll be embarked. How did you get to the point where you are pilot of a Sea Sprite in uh, Her Majesty's uh, New Zealand ship? Tamana? It's kind of a uh, kind of a long and uh, perilous road, but um, <laughs> it starts pretty much right. To, uh, while I was at school yep. um, and I, after I had my first ride in a helicopter basically decided it was for me I'd always been pretty keen on the Air Force and seen that the Air Force had helic- helicopters and when I was in uh, sixth form applied tried to get in unfortunately didn't make the grade um, and then uh, went away and thought about it for a bit thought I was, what I was going to do in my stand down for six months or whatever it was they decided that I, uh, before I could reply again um, and I did my civil licences so I did my commercial pilot's licence wow. um, spent a whole heap of money yeah, uh, and time doing that where did you do that one? Uh, just out of Armour. Um, and then found uh, at the end of that there wasn't a job waiting for me. <laughs> but, through, yeah, but through that I, um, I met a chap who, uh, who wised me up to the fact that the Navy actually had helicopters um, and they were looking for pilots. And I said, well, I'm still pretty keen on the Air Force. Um, not too sure about the Navy, but I'll, I'll give this a crack and see how far I get. And um, oh, here I am. Lo and behold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, so it started off with um, officer training uh, and then... Uh, the New Zealand Navy does all their, uh, their pilot training with the Air Force, so you do all the, the fixed wing stuff first, the air trainer, the king air, um, and then you do your rotary conversion uh, rather than go to the, to the big jet stuff. About 80 odd hours on a Bell 47, about a 400 hours on a Huey, and then uh, eventually moved to the, the mighty Sea Sprite, which is what, I'm, what I've been on for the last five or so years. How many hours have you got on the Sea Sprite? Around about 800. Not a, not a, not a, not a huge amount compared to some Civvy standards, but um, certainly the flying that we do is, um, is pretty varied and, and certainly very rewarding. Bell 47 to Huey is a bit of a jump and yeah it certainly is yeah a couple of classic helicopters mentioned there yeah. you know you've got the bell 47 is that iconic mash helicopter yeah. as everyone calls it and then the huey associated with vietnam and now you've you've jumped up to two engines and yeah. a whole lot more grunt yep two, two engines um fully fully ifr capable um a single pilot but we we, we don't really uh, whilst it's single pilot it's not really single crew um so in general we always operate with three crew so myself our tactical observer who you've spoken to and our crewman as well yep um and it's really just to get the most out of the aircraft and its and its capabilities and uh minimize the risk um because there's a lot going on for one pilot just sitting out the front trying <laughs> to operate the thing very yeah. so you're doing um ifr almost but not quite single pilot you do have the backup of the observer helping you out pretty much you're you're flying it sticking on you, you do much ifr work uh not i not IFR in the sense of uh, like airways, like it's between airfields or anything like that, but certainly um, low level over the water uh, at night um, mm. is essentially IFR because there's no there's no visible horizon whatsoever. Yeah. Well, it depends. If we're on MVGs, there might be, but if it's a dark <laughs> night, there, it, it might not be. There'll just be a green abyss as opposed to a black abyss. <laughs> but yeah, it's essentially on instruments um, at night, certainly. Yeah. And we do a little bit of overland stuff, mainly at night over the water as yeah. instruments. Yeah, I imagine that. Not, not a lot of horizon. And uh, I was speaking to Zach about using the uh, night vision goggles. Yep. And he was saying about the lack of depth perception and, and the time it took to get the hang of using them. That's hanging out the back and looking around and guiding you guys. How is it when you're up the front trying to see, uh, like, instruments and outside world? Well, I was uh, lucky enough to be sort of be brought up on MVG. So it was it was started training in the Air Force on helicopters. We started from day one using MVGs. Um, so did I, in my civvy time, I did a wee bit of unaided. Um, it didn't really 
wasn't really a massive fan of it. I certainly much rather much prefer MVGs. Um, we still do unaided on here as training, just in case the um, MVGs fail. And um, I can say I do not. I'm not a fan of that. It is dark <laughs> and it is scary. Um, I'd much rather prefer looking at it green nothingness than, than black and nothingness black, pure yeah. nothing at least green nothingness you can pretend that you can see what's coming up yeah it's slightly more soothing yeah. <laughs> what's it like to uh, land at night on a pitching deck what, what kind of guidance have you got to tell you where you're at and how and how you're going with your landing exciting is, is sums up in one word depending on how much pitch and roll how much wind and that sort of stuff um, there is it can it can be um, really challenging but it can also be really benign as well like if it's just a flat day really good light conditions um, it's no different from doing in the day and on a day when there's no pitch and roll and the wind's light it's, it's, it's pretty easy but yeah certainly once you get started getting some roll on going and you start getting some turbulence coming off the superstructure on the ship get dancing on the controls and uh, waiting for the waiting for the sweet spot to come uh, every seventh wave or so and just basically lining up with the, the lines you can see on the flight deck and getting a bit of a con from a crew as well so I'll set ourselves back on a 4-5 line from, from the ship so we can see ahead of us see any swells coming like that um, and then once I'm happy that there's nothing super dramatic coming I will move ourselves forward and right over the spot and then uh, I'm listening for Zach and Hamish, they'll call me onto the spot. Um, I can see it visually, but they'll because I'm staring at the front of the hangar face, not trying to hit that. Um, they'll give me a bit more, uh, bit more lineup assistance um, and tell me when I'm on that that, that sweet spot, the bum oh, line right. and the center line. Yep. Um, and when yeah, bum's good, and then. I'll just call coming down, and I'll come down uh, just at a nice steady rate. Not normally very softly, but that's, <laughs> Posit- not, that's not the aim of the game. Um, Positive return to deck. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the guys at the Lynx were saying that they, uh, while while the Lynx doesn't have the American harpoon kind of system that you can launch down and winch yourself down, yep. uh, they are able to reverse the pitch of the blades to help push them onto the mm. deck. Do you have anything like no, that? No, we don't. No, we don't have any of any of those luxuries. Um, no. So we have essentially, uh, w- w- you would have seen there is a claw underneath the aircraft, mm-hmm. and there's a grid in the deck. Yep. It relies on us hitting that grid, and I've certainly missed it in my time. <laughs> but yeah, like it'll 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 grab the aircraft onto the deck, and it'll hold it there, and then we'll get the chains on, and then the ship can ship can manoeuvre. Um, if we miss it for whatever reason, not a massive drama. We just get the guys out of the chains, um, but they're slightly quicker if the deck lock's not going. Well, I imagine for them, if, if you are on a pitching deck, those rotors would be flexing a fair bit. Yeah, if they're up at speed, they're all fine. But certainly, if they're on their way up, spinning up, or on their way spinning down, yeah, you don't want to be near them, and we won't won't ever clear any people in and out of the disc while. We're starting up or shutting down. Our disc has quite a lot of tilt forward and left. You guys don't want to be approaching from about the 10 o'clock. Yeah. Um, so we want to get our guys approach from 12 to 2 and then plenty of height under there. So how is she to fly? She's pretty nice. Yeah, she's a very, very stable platform. Bit of a truck though. Like I wouldn't say she's a sports car at all. She doesn't really like being thrown around very much. Like um, limited to 45 degrees angle of bank on a good day. Um, and then hot and high. About thirty load and yeah, yeah, um, just just by design. So yeah, it's uh, she, she, she doesn't like being rolled on her back like some of the other more sporty like the Lynx, for example. But yeah, she, she's really really nice to fly. Um, a whole lot of automation to help you out, yep. um, and even when that automation fails and you're reverting to degraded modes, um, still very flyable. Like doesn't require hydraulic assistance because of the servo tabs. Yeah. Um, so if it, you lose hydro, you lose stabilization. No massive deal. Just gets a bit more sensitive, like like a turbo-sensitive Huey, almost. And if you lose that boost, it's still quite happily flyable and you just have to think a bit more carefully about how you're going to come back to the deck but still achievable and I know as you were just talking about the servo tabs on the on the rotors you, you don't actually change the disc of the rotors but like you do on a on a Huey or things like that by, by having a swash plate correct? Uh, so it's got like it's got what's called azimuth which is essentially a swash plate but it's mounted below the transmission as opposed to above but what we're doing when we move our controls is we're changing the pitch of the servo tabs mechanically yep. and then the servo tabs aerodynamically change the pitch of the blades so uh, when I move the cyclic 
the whole blade doesn't move. Or certainly when the rotor is static, the whole blade doesn't move. Uh, when the rotor is spinning, because there's aerodynamic forces, the servo tab will move and by extension the blade moves as well. Um, so what that means is you don't need a big massive hydraulic system or multiple hydraulic systems to move a huge gyroscope, you're just moving those servo tabs and they're pretty light. So even boost out, perfectly fine. Pedals are a bit heavy, pedals are as a normal helicopter would be, but cycling and collective certainly, it's got to give them a bit of a muscle. Lighter than a Huey boost out. Well that's great. Yeah. So even with boost out it's still lighter. Yep. So it's sort of like a trim tab on the on the elevator and, yep. and rudder of it, like a normal fixed wing aircraft and you could, by adjusting that you're adjusting where it is. Do you know any other helicopters? Uh, it's unique to command built stuff. So um, really the only things that are still around with them, uh, I think the Husky, the K-Max has them, oh, and yeah. then the C-Sprite. Um, and that's about the only things that um, are rocking it. But it's quite an interesting design concept, and it's, it's interesting that not many other people use them. Now, in terms of uh, starting it up, you don't have any of the modern FADEC and things like that, so I imagine you've got to be pretty on the ball for not doing a hot start and overcooking and things like that? Uh, it's not too bad. Uh, the way the system's rigged, it's pretty much like three switches, turn and press a button, and it turns on. Uh, but it's not FADEC, you're right, it's, it's um, hydrochemical units and that sort of malarkey. Um, so you do, still do have to be vigilant for temperatures not rising, things rising hotter or cooking off hotter than they should be. But in general, it's pretty easy to, to shut it down, just grab the ECL and hack it back to off if anything goes astray, and get the engineers to have a look at it and go back inside and have a coffee. I've not experienced any massive um, snags engine-wise of this. And it's yeah. pretty good. T700 is a pretty um, robust and powerful engine, and we've got two of them yeah. um, for a helicopter that probably only needed one. One of the big things that we have going for us is how much power we have for our weight. Do you have to do much training to keep current with um, procedures with uh, engine out and all that, or is it more not so much in the we, aircraft? We we certainly do emergency training. We don't practice full engine touchdown autos or anything like that, um, just based on risk and that sort of stuff. But we certainly practice single engine failures. Um, we do practice auto rotations. She comes down pretty quick, um, okay. on a, on a, like at a at a minimum about two and a half thousand feet per minute. So she's just yeah. rocking and down, and that's at sort of medium weights. <laughs> um, heavy, I want to see what, she's, what she does. But we also do simulator training as well. So when you're, when you're out on the mission, uh, we had Hamish telling us about as the observer. He's there taking a look at the sensors and giving you a bit of a uh, inter- interfacing with the ship and so on. Your role is to uh, take it where it's supposed to go, where you're directed by the ship? Pretty much. I mean, you could call me a glorified taxi driver, I suppose. But essentially positioning the aircraft where the observer needs it or where the ship needs it um, and keeping the aircraft in a, in a safe flight regime. So when Hamish is trying to fight the aircraft in the middle of the night um, with a thousand contacts around us he doesn't have to worry about where the aircraft is and, and what heights it's at and that sort of stuff I mean he, he's obviously got those instruments and he can look at it and scan it and that sort of stuff but essentially his job is to fight it, my job is to fly it okay. and Zach's in the back um, as our third set of eyes and ears who can back either one of us up yep. um, or is doing an entirely separate role in the back but it's all about the use of that three man crew and trying to sort of get that fusion of all yep. three roles together to operate the aircraft as safely and as efficiently as possible. When we were speaking with Hamish before um, he mentioned uh, that you're about to deploy to the Gulf of Aden, yep. the first time a Kiwi ship's gone out there. Yep. Uh, I understand there's some um, interesting peculiarities of operating in that environment, not just the sandstorms that can blow out to sea and so on. How are you guys going for uh, training up for, to deal with the local issues? Well, we're obviously heading north, so on, on the way up we'll get to experience of the increase in temperatures and that sort of stuff, which will go along, uh, which will be probably the primary thing we'll be worried about up in the AO. As I said before, the Sprite's pretty overpowered, so not anticipating too many issues when we've got two engines. <laughs> when we've got one engine, it might be a bit of a, a bit of a different story. Compared to other helicopters, like the Huey, um, or the Sioux, or um, some of the other silly ones that are flying, it doesn't really suffer environmentally, and uh, certainly not until you get very high uh, or very hot. Lieutenant David Roderick, thank you very much for coming on the show. No dramas at all. 
Lieutenant Hamish Liddy. Welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Thank you. Mate, you're part of the crew of the Sea Sprite. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the SH-2G. Yeah, and you're in the left-hand seat, I believe? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm one of two observers that we've got embarked on tomorrow at the moment. Okay. Uh, so the senior observers, the flight commander, Lieutenant Commander Quinn, and I've, I've got my D category at the moment, so that means basically my restricted license, so I can do everything by myself in the aircraft with the pilot and the crewman, but in terms of the embarked environment, just some of the challenges with that, mm. I get some more supervision for the next couple of months yep. as I work up towards um, my CCAT check. You're in the left-hand seat, you're um, working as the observer, running the, the mission along with the pilot. How did you get to that point in your career? I originally joined the Navy to become an observer, uh, but in New Zealand, obviously being quite small, we only send one person on the observer course at once, and that's uh, run over in uh, East Sail, Royal Australian Air Force Base down there in Victoria. They call it the Aviation Warfare Officers course yes. now, uh, yep. the new Australian name for observers. We uh, still refer to ourselves as observers, though. We're stepping back a bit. So when I first joined, I had about a two-year wait to look at before I go on that course, just because of the numbers. Uh, so I started my initial training um, after officer training was as a bridge watchkeeper, and I did about three months on one of our inshore patrol vessels and then almost two years on HMNZS Canterbury which is our um, logistic support ship just doing basic bridge watch keeping duties as well as um, basic warfare tasks that's associated with that and then after that went to Australia for the 12 month course there the aviation um, warfare officers course From memory you, you actually wind up on board uh, a variety of aircraft not just helicopters but I, I believe these days it also includes the King Air was that the case when you were there? Uh, so yeah the King Air 350s are the uh, primary training aircraft they have there and it's obviously the schools combined with the um, Air Force, Australian Air Force Air Warfare Officers as well so they've got consoles set up in the back of those aircraft especially which simulate uh, radar and uh, electro optics and that kind of thing to simulate being in the back of a P3 or Wedgetail. Uh, for ourselves we were sat in the right hand seat versus the left hand seat which is the normal co-pilot seat in a King Air with an instructor sat in a specially designed jump seat between the seats basically learning our basic aviator skills and a fixed wing vice a um, rotary wing um, aircraft. Yeah, so you're actually getting a view while you're up the front. Yeah, no, it is pretty cool. Obviously, sitting in the front seat, not at a, one of those specially designed air warfare consoles, it's kind of limited in what it can replicate in terms of an operational aircraft, but it's really about the um, key aviator skills. So we, we start off basically learning co-pilot duties, how to run checklists, how to monitor airspeeds, descent rates, all that kind of stuff. Instrument, navigation, briefing approach plates, that kind of stuff. As an observer, did you get trained at any point on, on flying an aircraft? Uh, no, no. Uh, so we, we do FPC uh, and everything, obviously, as part of the course. And um, airframe knowledge, obviously, engines everything. So we're backing up on the instruments. Important that we understand instrument flying and what we're looking at. Um, how to safely monitor a pilot, all that kind of information. But in terms of hands and feet, uh, that's the reason I'm an observer in the first place. <laughs> didn't, didn't pass the coordination test at the start. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so no, no real stick time, but a lot of, a lot of like multi-crew operations and, yeah. and you know, co- cockpit resource management. Definitely, yeah. it's all the um, pilot non-flying type duties that, that we take care of. So obviously the briefing, the navigation, communications, CRM, like you said. Yeah. So you spent a year in sail, East Sail, surviving there and, and getting everything done and passed the course and then it was back to uh, Fanuapai? Yeah that's yeah after a couple of weeks off pretty much straight back over onto conversion on the sea sprite which was the basic ground training package of I think it was four or five weeks of um, ground lectures and exams with the, the Air Force instructors so unlike in some other courses where you 
get taught by other pilots or observers about the avionics and um, airframe side of things. We actually had the avionics and airframe experts, the sergeants uh, from the squadron, who were teaching us that stuff, so it gave sort of a really good in-depth maintainer level understanding of some of the equipment that we have on board. It's important to have, isn't it? Actually, um, as part of that course, well, as part of the conversion, it's lucky enough to do about 12 hours uh, in the front of a CT4 air trainer as well. The main reason for that being the um, AVWAT course in Australia is quite light on low-level and um, visual navigation. We do a lot of high-level airways navigation, but because the Australian students will then go onto the Squirrel, Mm. where they'll get a lot of that visual low-level navigation, and we go straight into the operational aircraft. It's a bit cheaper to, to bend some hours off doing low-level time on target in a CD4 than in a C-SPROT. I uh, even got to do uh, a bit of aer- aerobatics, nice. and they were silly enough to let me fly a loop as well, so <laughs> there's a bit of fun. I don't think I'll get that chance on the C-SPROT somehow. <laughs> no, 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 although uh, you do have a set of controls up the front, so uh, what are you doing up the front in the left-hand seat? It's pretty much a case of, in, in the aircraft, aside from the non-flying pilot duties that we talked about, is um, running the tactical aspects of all the flight uh, so that's everything from the sensor management in the front to uh, determining tactics and deciding courses of action uh, with regards to the um, tactical situation and liaising with the ship. Are you allowed to say what kind of sensors you've got on board? The, the main sensors that we, we use really for all observers is the radar obviously to locate targets and then uh, close them and identify them using the um, infrared and daylight camera that we have on the front. So it's a um, Star Sapphire HD FLIR camera oh, which gives us very nice. It's a pretty capable piece of kit and it's certainly um, my favourite piece of kit that's on the aircraft. So yeah that's one of the kind of the limitations I guess of the sea sprite. You've already talked about having this set of controls on the front so unlike a traditional observer have a, a good plotting board on their knee we just got to do everything off our knee board and then we're a little bit constrained with the, the setup of the screen as well we've just got the one screen in the middle which serves for our tactical radar and flare display so wow. you can obviously only show one of those three okay. things at a time yeah, so it's a bit of, bit of juggling and kneeboard use to correlate those three things together I did wonder how that would work out seeing only one in the, in the front so you, you, you kept pretty busy and, and trying not to get in the way of the controls as well yeah, oh, it's a bit of a juggle in any steep right turns. You have to do a bit of a shuffle to get the knee out of the way or, or your pins will go flying. <laughs> yeah, so. I can imagine. So you don't have sonar or things like that on board for underwater? Uh, no, so the aircraft itself was originally designed as an ASW platform. A lot of the background behind the systems on board, a lot of it, as you can tell, it's been set up for ASW. It has very good systems for setting up attacks and that kind of things on submarines. However, we don't we lack the acoustic sensors that the American sea structures have. Uh, so our only role in ASW really is to, to carry weapons and uh, drop them as directed by other units. Are you running the um, the operation when you're in the air or are you taking a look at the big picture and guiding the pilot and, and uh, liaising with the other the other assets that are out there? It kind of depends on the situation. Obviously we're a part of, we're an asset for the ship. We're not our own aircraft so it really depends on what the command intentions are that are coming out of the operations room on the ship. So via an aircraft controller who sits in the ops room of the ship will be directed by the PWO uh, via the captain of what they actually want the aircraft to achieve and sometimes that might be as broad as you know sanitize this area look for a certain contact or it might be as specific as investigate this yep. this exact spot so it really depends on the day so your typical missions around four to six hours or typical mission for training missions is usually about uh, two hours just based on our fuel loads and endurance and what what we can actually achieve at a time there's only 24 hours a day in the ship's 
got things that it needs to achieve as well. And when we're doing uh, flying operations, that obviously ties up some other elements of the ship. So we usually do sort of a two or three hour mission. Uh, we can extend that with uh, when we come back for rotors running refuel or uh, rotors running reload. Um, but yeah, it's sort of these standard times. And I understand you got have you got two full crews on board for the one aircraft? Uh, no, just the the one crew. Okay. So we we got one extra uh, mission earlier with the flight commander being a, the second of uh, the other observer, myself yep. being the second observer. Uh, but only one pilot and one crewman. And so you uh, draw straws or uh, have a schedule with the, the other observer to, to tell who goes out? Uh, I've been pretty lucky, actually. The flight commander's been letting me um, get most of the opportunities on the trip so far just to, to build my experience up. Awesome. But obviously you need to, to keep keep us both current for our monthly hours, so I, I don't get to do all of it yet. <laughs> so uh, where do you see things going for yourself in the, in the Navy? <clears throat> Uh, it's uh, pretty exciting at the moment, so after we uh, complete our work in Australia, we'll be going on an operational deployment as part of Task Force 151 in the uh, Gulf of Aden, which is uh, the, actually the first properly operational deployment a Navy ship's done since I joined the Navy, so wow. pretty much timed it perfectly. Uh, expect to uh, come back from that and spend another uh, four or five months or so consolidating at the squadron and uh, before looking at the SH-2GI project, which is uh, already on the horizon and people are already um, looking into that. A bit of a series of upgrades and equipment and so on. Yeah, so the um, previously the, the SH-2GA Australian uh, sea sprites, which uh, after a number of factors were um, turned down by the Australian government. Uh, so they've just been sitting waiting for a customer basically and luckily for us that's us. The biggest um, exciting thing about that really as an observer is uh, some of those limitations I was speaking about earlier with the one screen and the difficulty with integrating the information that you're seeing with the ship's picture will be sorted out by some of the new systems that are in that aircraft. Uh, so correlation between uh, radar and FLIR will be a lot better. We'll be able to manipulate the information on tracks that we have in the system and also uh, transmit that to the ship via a tactical data link instead of uh, reporting everything by voice, which is what we currently do. That's fantastic. We'll be part of that network force, as they talk about. The exactly. Network, network so warfare. Just a sort of a step into the current future that it is in the, <laughs> for the New Zealand Navy. Yeah. I want a quick throwaway before we, we end this. Uh, you do have the controls there. You've had a little bit of time on a CT4. I, I understand there can be moments where it's like, here, hold this, hold a steady type of thing. Do you get many of those moments? Uh, yeah, there's one or two. I've, sometimes if we fly down tonight, I'll um, be able to keep it straight and level while um, Rodders gets his goggles on, uh, that kind of thing. On occasions I've flown with a qualified helicopter instructor and I've flown a circle or two just to, you know, get the feel of the different flight controls. So, yeah, it's pretty fun, but, you know, I'd rather be the tactical guru rather than the stick monkey any day. <laughs> so uh, any, any thoughts on uh, getting your own private licence? I have thought about it. Um, I haven't really had the time, uh, to be honest, between uh, training in Australia and then uh, pretty intensive uh, training work up in New Zealand, but it's certainly one of the things that I've had in the back of my mind for when I get a spare few moments. Anything else you'd like to say about working on the Sea Sprite and with Timana? It's just a great opportunity. Beautiful Sydney at the moment with all of the other nations around. Quite a stirring sight coming in this morning, you know, um, all the ships around, so yeah. yeah definitely enjoying the Navy. I think I've made, definitely right, made the right career move for myself. Well, i got to say, down here on the wharf in Woolloomooloo, it's a pretty choice view, isn't it? That's excellent, yeah. <laughs> I'll be um, looking to get out and get amongst it later on this evening. Excellent. Well, I won't hold you from that, mate. Thank you very much, Hamish, for coming on the show. Thank you. 
Leading hand Zach Taylor from Her Majesty's New Zealand ship Timana. Welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Yeah, thanks. It's good to be here. Mate, you're a crewman on the Sea Sprite. Yes, I am, yeah. Uh, let's have a chat about what roles you perform on that aircraft. Yeah, sure. What is it you do? You sit in the back? Um, yep, so what I do, I sit in the back, um, I operate the winch, I look after any passengers. Um, we can move things around in the aircraft in flight, say we need to um, get a stretcher on board or something like that. Um, my job is to get that all sorted. Like, and um, yeah, and also when we're doing um, underslung loads, the pilot and observer can't see the load, so what I do is I paint a verbal picture for them. And also when we're doing uh, warfare serials, I'm sort of a capacity man, so I keep an eye on call signs and fuels and um, just an extra set of ears on the comms basically when they're not, okay. not as good as they can be. You're on board, you, you, you don't have like a, a, a station in the back with equipment, um, consoles and so on? Not really, no, no. Um, I sort of sit there and um, keep an eye on things basically. Like a loadmaster kind of role in a way? Uh, yeah, kind of, yeah. So um, when the aircraft um, takes people or equipment somewhere, I'll uh, weigh it or guesstimate how much it's going to weigh, um, convert it into pounds because it's an American aircraft that works in pounds. And then um, I brief the uh, pilot and observer um, on how much power they can expect to be pulling yep. um, to, to lift whatever it is that we're carrying. And how did you get to the role of, of crew on a Sea Sprite? Well, because you can't join the um, New Zealand Navy as a crewman. I was originally a combat system specialist, so I was a radar guy. So I sat in the ops room and, and tracked radars and I was always quite interested in helicopters. I, um, I even went as far as um, on my course, uh, my professional course to get promoted. I um, did a little bit of training on how to control a helicopter. I never got to do any live stuff but sort of started catching the bug. I went to sea um, and they raffle off flights occasionally and so I... I um, ended up buying a considerable number of tickets. Um, <laughs> so I could, the market. Pretty much, yeah. So I could get this flying lesson, and I ended up being in the um, the front left-hand seat where the observer sits and got a flying lesson with one of the senior pilots, and it pretty much caught the bug from there. So when I came back, I looked at a few options, and one of the uh, people that was uh, my supervisor when I first joined the Navy had just changed over to be a helicopter crewman. He was a similar trade as well. So I sent a few emails to him, spent about a week or two out, at, um, at Six Squadron at Whanuapai doing some, some winching and watching how they operate and then um, yeah I put a few bits of paper together with my division officer and yeah a few, few selection boards and a, and a decent course later here I am so What's involved in the course? Um, the course um, we train with Three Squadron um, who's based down in Hakia they fly the um, UH-1H Iroquois um, which is more of a purpose built um, utility helicopter so crewman's job is mainly utility stuff so they do the most of it so we learn with them and they've been training crewmen for, for years and years and years so I went down there and you learn how to move the helicopter around because the pilots can't see pretty much past about their two o'clock or three o'clock because um, they're stripped into their seats so we move around in areas surrounded by trees and we call them into certain distances outside the um, the main and the tail rotor blade um, we also learn how to um, to lift loads and prepare loads we also do a little bit of um, or do actually do quite a lot of, of winching as well so winch people in and out we do rich and stretches and stuff like that and then we start combining the things so say we do a winch in a confined area or a load in a confined area and then um, we sort of start again if you will uh, learn to fly at night time using night vision goggles so we wow. we start from the basics so from the general handling to the to the winching to the loads and, um, and confined spaces in the confined areas as well yeah how do you find the night vision goggles is, is it just like a green version of daylight or um, not really it's, it's similar to having um, two toilet tubes strapped to your eyes and it, it reminds me of seeing into the matrix everything's yep. all green um, <laughs> that's awesome yeah your depth perception isn't too good because it's like two little um, TV screens that you look into and then and they're designed to focus to infinity so anything inside about two metres is, is quite tricky to see so you flick them up do what you're doing and then flick them down again to look into look at whatever um, in the distance so it took a bit of getting used to but yeah, with, a, with a lot of exposure to it and quite a bit of training um, you do get used to them okay. 
Um, it's just an extra bit of kit to worry about, unfortunately. I imagine when you're doing the winching and the confined spaces operations, that that lack of depth perception, you, you, what do you do to get around that? Is it just experience? Um, yeah, it's a little bit of experience. Um, also, the, the helicopter's got quite a few sensors as well, which helps us out for, um, so um, it's got a radar altimeter, which will tell you exactly how high you are above a given thing below the transmit and receive antenna. So that's not too bad. So I can confirm what I'm seeing. Um, and basically what you do is you sort of translate those numbers into, into a, what we call a sight picture. So things that look a, a certain size are usually this far below you um, and you sort of start honing that as you do it more and more. For example, when we when I was training, we sort of we were um, in confined areas and basically you know, if you couldn't distinguish individual pine needles, then you were quite far away. And then when the uh, smaller branches becoming became visual, you were a bit closer. And when you could see the pine needles, you are about as close as you wanted to get. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine if you're seeing individual pine needles, oh, I'm close. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, I, I guess after you've done all that with a, a Huey, you'd head north and, and do uh, familiarisation you know, with the with the sea sprite. Yeah, exactly. So we do our initial course, and then we um, we basically do some consolidation with the air force for a bit, get a bit more experience up, because um, the sea sprite is quite a different platform and quite a bit harder to learn on. So after about I spent about two or three months down at um, three squadron consolidating, and then I came up to um, Fanuapai, um, and then did a conversion course, which was about four to six weeks long, to do all the stuff that we do. Um, with the Sea Sprite ashore um, and then a bit later on I um, once I got a bit more experience on the Sea Sprite then we came out to um, to see uh, earlier this year with Tamanda and did some training on the stuff that's different about being on a ship versus being a, being ashore. Confined spaces being one of the first that comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. Pitching decks and so on. Yeah, that's that's interesting, yeah. Do you get any um, training in, in basic maintenance and so on to help out if you're operating away from base or things like that? Um, I get a little bit. Um, I, get, I can refuel the aircraft but that's about it. We yeah. separate those quite quite obviously so um, yeah it would, it would be nice but yeah uh, the Sea Sprite is sort of a aircraft that's designed to have a team of maintainers with it whereas the Huey isn't really as much <laughs> very battlefield orientated exactly yeah Yeah. okay now the Huey being a single engine the Sea Sprite having dual I guess yeah. uh, you can carry a fair bit of extra weight and so on uh, yes um, yeah it's it's quite good um, the Sea Sprite is designed to carry heavy things like weapons um, so yeah it's quite they're quite powerful um, and also their two engine is really good for overwater operations because it's a redundancy so yeah. one engine goes, fingers crossed you've still got your other one, um, and it's powerful enough to carry you at your particular weight. Yeah, and are you able to tell me just what kind of gross weights you're carrying what, and kind of loads and missions yeah. you'd be on? We've got an all-up weight of about 14,000 pounds, which is about seven tonnes or so, um, and that's fully loaded, so that's that's about as much as the aircraft can carry. Um, the cargo hook is rated to about 4,000 pounds, so about two tonnes, but normally you don't end up getting anywhere near that because you've got your, your aircraft's basic weight you've got your fuel and you've got your crew so that's normally about the limit of stuff we can carry but what are the kind of missions you've been on um, since you since you crossed over to the sea sprite um i've been on a on a few good ones um earlier in the year we went um with the ship up to um southeast asia which was quite cool um we did um, a bit of a defense diplomacy mission but we managed to get in a bit of training here and there so we did some cool flying um supportive exercise basama shield which is like a five powers agreement with um the Singaporeans, Malaysians, Australians um, and the Brits. Yeah, so we did a few things with them, which was quite cool. Um, we've also operated to the um, ESPS Cantabria, which was which was quite fun. We did a cross-deck exercise while Tamana was getting fuel off Cantabria. We were flying a, um, oh, wow. a practice load, which was, which was really cool. A bit of vert rep and things like that. Exactly, yeah. That was, yeah, it was good for us. It was good for them as well. Now, you said before the before you came to the helicopters, you were on board as a, as a defence operator? Yeah, yeah. I was a, um, a combat system specialist, so I just did radar. Um, basically, um, the CSS are based in the ops room, and they uh, manned the um, eyes and ears of the ship. 
ship, if you will. We've got yeah, a couple of different radars that we can use for looking at air targets or surface targets. Um, we also work closely with the electronic warfare guys as well, um, so we can sniff out submarines and that sort of thing, yeah. So guys, yeah, the Anzac frigates are, uh, one of their roles is air defence. Are you able to talk about the kind of environment that's working in? Yeah, um, for, for air defence, basically uh, we usually end up being a, uh, a radar picket or a station that sits out and um, tracks things because our radars have got quite a long range. So, And we've also, we're fitted with the, um, the Block 1 Bravo Seawiz, mm. which is really good for anti-air um, warfare as well. Yep. Yeah, We've also got a handful of missiles, but um, at the moment we're mostly just self-defence only, yep. um, relying on larger ships to to protect us and the consorts. Anything else you'd like to say about uh, Timana and the Sea Sprite and so on? Oh, I really enjoy it. It's, um, it sounds really cheesy, but no two days are ever the same. There's always two ways or three ways to look at the thing that you're doing. Um, a really good relationship with the, um, the crew, and we all get on pretty well, and we really do some cool stuff. We get to fly in a helicopter every day, which is something that not a lot of people get to say they do. So Jealous as, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Zach Taylor, thanks very much for coming on the show. No worries, Scott. Cool, so um, we'll just give you a... Um, one of our squadron patches, just as a bit of a uh, memento from your time here on Tamana. Um, so this is uh, not our squadron crest, but our squadron patch. Um, and there's a bit of bit of stuff going on on there, so I'll just talk briefly through it. Um, so Six One is a bit unique as a squadron because it's an Air Force squadron. The aircraft are maintained by uh, Air Force maintainers, but the aircrew are all almost almost entirely Navy. Um, so with the patch, we've got Royal New Zealand Air Force and Royal New Zealand Navy to signify yeah. the coming together of the two services. The blue diamonds, diamonds are the well, so I'm told to uh, signify a strike squadron being the uh, only, well, one of the only aircraft in the RNZF that can fire weapons, or even weapons. <laughs> um, we consider ourselves a strike squadron, so hence the Blue Islands. The grey is the Navy ships, and the blue is the Air Force or the Sky. Um, and the, the hippocampus, or the horsefish, <laughs> um, that harks back to, um, to World War II, which was the, um, the squadron's uh, symbol back in the day when they flew um, the Sutherlands. Uh, and the other flying boat, which is the name is uh, the Catalina. That's the one. Yeah. yeah, cool. So that's pretty much the the patch and nuts. Now a whole lot going on, but wow, it's um, that's fantastic. Yeah, Thank so that's you our gift to you. Oh mate, that's legend. That's Thank you. No dramas. Mick, welcome to Plane Crazy, mate. Great. Thanks very much. I understand you're uh, the first time you went for a flight in a little aircraft. You never came back down with the aircraft. No, I didn't. I actually got up to uh, 21 flights for no landings at one stage. And uh, the first time I landed actually was uh, the old ANSET days. And my mates told them that I'd never landed. So they put me in the cockpit for the landing. Oh, nice. The pilot said, you sit there because we don't want you jumping out of this one. <laughs> the good old days. Yeah. When you could do that sort of stuff. What made you get into um, skydiving? Everybody else was doing it. The mates were doing it and uh, didn't want to get left out. Sound like a good idea. And that was round parachutes? Yeah, yeah, the old-fashioned ones. I remember I, I came home the night before and my mother looked at me and said, are you trying to commit suicide? <laughs> what are you talking about? And she found out someone had told her. So that was that was her opinion of it all. But we survived. After doing a whole lot of parachute jumps, um, I understand you joined the Army Reserve? Yeah, Cook Yabbies. Ah, uh, we remember that ad. That's it, that's <laughs> it. Another good idea at the time. Did you do much jumping with them? No, no. No. Any aircraft involvement at all with that? Uh, we did get to see a Nomad, but, oh. they, but they told us to go away from it because it was a General's. It was up at Pucker, so we weren't allowed to touch it. We were trying to get a flight in it. The pilot was keen, but this General came back too early and he said, sorry, boys, got to go. So I understand you've had um, some other interesting flight experiences over time. Whereabouts have you um, travelled to get some of these flying experiences? 
well, Australia, um, light aircraft. What I do is I ride a bicycle and it gets too hot. So you go to the pub and you say, where's the aerodrome? And you go out there and you pay them and they fly from A to B. All you need is two people. You'd be amazed what you can get in the wings of those aircraft. You know, those little open up flaps. Oh, okay. They'll take a bicycle wheel. They'll take two of them and you put the frames in the middle. Where you go. <laughs> it's good fun. So uh, ride a bike, go find an aircraft, That's get it. someone to fly you and then keep riding. That's it. It's an easy way. What got your interest in aviation happening? Oh, I think just as a kid, you know, you, you look up at aircraft when you're like six or seven years of old and you're either fascinated or you're not. And I was one of the ones that was fascinated. Although I didn't jump off any roofs, though. I'm trying <laughs> to be Superman. Aside from the... Did you do much parachuting after those 21 jumps? You... I did 27 altogether. Okay. And that was enough because every time I jumped, somebody was getting injured. That's no, just crazy. And I don't know what it's like now, but in those days, 30 knot winds people were jumping out of, and they would just disappear over the horizon, you know, yeah. over trees and just wave goodbye to them. You yeah. know? And they'd come back an hour later after having marched through paddocks and they'd be torn by barbed wire fences and all this sort of stuff. And that was fun. Yeah, well, supposedly. <laughs> it was cheap. It was only like you know, 25 bucks a jump or something in those days. Yeah. But that was a bit of money back then. Yeah, it was probably two slabs. Yeah. That's how long ago it was. That's not a bad... That's actually not too bad, because I think it's about four slabs now to go for a jump. Okay, well... <laughs> four or five. Yeah, it makes it a bit harder. <laughs> so what kind of flying uh, experiences are you getting these days? Uh, well, to and from the air show. That, that's my, my big biannual trip. Yeah. Every two years, yeah. that's yeah. it. Yeah, from Moorabbin to the air show. Uh, a few helicopters there. And I fly into state to do a lot of day trips. Just stay overnight, that type of thing. Okay. Go on the internet, have a look at, find a cheap flight, sort of six months in advance, and it yeah. doesn't matter where it's going to, it's just an excuse to get in the air. So how'd you find uh, Plane Crazy Down Under? What, what tipped you off to our existence? Well, I'd been aware that podcasts had existed, and I was trying to work out what I could do for a podcast. I was thinking, aircraft now, that'd be the go, get involved in that, but somebody had already beaten me to it. I wonder who that was. <laughs> Ooh, gee, I wonder. Yeah, so I came across the, pod, uh, the, um, the podcast and been enjoying it ever since. So which ones do you listen to these days? Uh, yours, of course, and uh, Airplane Geeks. Yeah. I like that. Well, here's a question for you. I know you don't really have, like, an iPhone or anything like that, so do you download to your computer and listen on the computer, or do you have an iPod that you listen to the podcast on? Yeah, MP3 player, yeah. Spend about um, 12 hours a week travelling to and from work. It kills the time. And I always listen to it two or three times easy to make sure I get everything. Oh, wow. Well, you, you know, sometimes you miss a bit, so yeah. And then there's always that extra bit at the end that most people miss. Ah, uh, yeah, the bloopers. That's it. <laughs> you get some good value there. Yeah, there's some fun in those. So, Mick, anything else to say before we go back to uh, peering down on ships on the harbour? No, life is tough. Thanks for your company. We scored well with the view here. You can see from the harbour bridge all the way out past the heads. We can see there at the moment there's three ships forming up out there. Just waiting for the fly, the fly pass that kicks off at about 20 past 11. That should be coming past our window. Yeah, not much higher than we are, I think. And I think we're on level 33, so <laughs> they won't be much higher. OK, well, thanks, Mick. And, no problem. Uh, great to have you on board as a listener. Thanks for helping make this possible to uh, enjoy the views. Any time, any time. Thanks, mate. Much appreciated. Ever dreamt of flying in a warbird? Why not strap yourself in for pure excitement and let a supercharged radial engine take you up to speeds of 200 knots? Dare to push the boundaries as you experience up to 6.5G 
fully aerobatic or simply take in the spectacular scenery of Western Port Bay, French and Phillip Islands with 360-degree views. Come and join us at Adventure Wings in Turidan and take flight in our Nanchang CJ6A. Plane Crazy Down Under listeners get the 15-minute flight for only $250. That's a saving of $30. Call us on 0418 525 658 or visit our website adventurewings.com.au. Flying every weekend and other times by appointment. Adventure Wings. Leave the ordinary behind. Hi, I'm Dave Homewood from the Wings Over New Zealand show, New Zealand's own aviation podcast series where we feature the stories of Kiwi pilots, warbird restorers, Air Force veterans, home builders, historians, authors, modelers, stories from aviation museums and associations, air show reports, and much, much more. The Wings Over New Zealand show loves to bring you the stories of Kiwis who've made their mark on aviation. So find the Wings Over New Zealand show online. Find more about it on the world-famous Wings Over New Zealand aviation forum, and like us on Facebook. We also love to listen to Steve, Grant and the team at the Plane Crazy Down Under Show. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. Thevoicesinyourhead.com And welcome back, folks. And Kathy Maxted joins us. Kathy, uh, you've been up again with the military. Uh, I think this is the second military flight you've had since uh, you've you know you've become gainfully employed here at PCDU. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good, isn't it? First time was in the Herc, and um, I was actually having a fairly leisurely holiday in Alice Springs with my sister. And was it Grant or you? Grant uh, emailed. And as the week went by, the email slowly revealed what was on offer. (laughs) So by the time I flew to Sydney on Friday, I was pretty excited but hadn't had time to cram. And so Friday night in a panic, I emailed a mate who used to be in the Navy and said, oh, my God, what am I doing? (laughs) He sent me back two dozen interview questions. So, yeah, but it was brilliant. So you went up for a ride on the Navy's new MRH-90, the NH-90 as it's known, I guess, mostly around the world, but uh, they're calling it here the MRH-90, the Taipan, and uh, the Australian Defence Force, uh, according to their website, has ordered uh, 46 airframes, and, of course, most of those will uh, end up with the Army, but uh, several of them are going to the Navy. Yeah, it's a good idea, isn't it, to um, standardise the fleet of helicopters. In the interview, you'll hear Jack, uh, the lieutenant who was the pilot that flew us down, talking about how they um, wanted to streamline the fleet across the Army and the Navy so as they could minimise repairs and parts and stuff, which makes good sense. So tell us about the flight. They picked you up in Sydney after we, you know, you were whisked back from Alice Springs to Sydney and uh, <laughs> flew down to Creswell. I think that's at Jarvis Bay. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. HMAS Creswell is the Navy's initial training base. So when you first join up, you rock up at Creswell and do six months there training. And then they usually go off and do whatever else they're going to do after that. So we um, arrived at HMAS Watson, which is at Watson's Bay in Sydney, uh, with the most stunning view of the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House from their wardroom. The helicopter landed on the helipad and um, we all got a briefing and were led on board and I was strapped in with the door open, feeling for all the world like Neil Davis (laughs) (laughs) with my combat gear and my big camera. And um, and we took off from there and flew along Victor 1 at 500 feet south from Sydney along the city and down towards Wollongong to Nara, which was about, I think, just under half an hour flight. 
It was an absolutely perfect day and a beautiful flight. So we landed at uh, HMAS Creswell on the sports field. It was great. Okay, so HMAS Creswell, you were down there and you obviously didn't get out to uh, play rugby. You actually uh, got out there to uh, record some interviews. I did get out and Ben Wickham kindly produced a, um, a voice recorder for me because I'd been in Alice on holidays with my sister and didn't have any of my recording gear with me because I didn't think I needed it. And um, yeah, I interviewed the pilot there and then at HMAS Creswell where we had lunch at the wardroom, I interviewed Captain Brett Chandler, who's the CEO of the base, the training base there. No worries. Let's have a listen to the interviews, Kathy, and we'll come back and have a chat about it at the other side. I'm with Jack Wadey, who is... What's your role, Jack? Uh, so I'm a pilot here on the MRH90 helicopter, yeah. And you just flying us down from Sydney? We have, yeah. We had a great trip down today. Beautiful weather and a beautiful day to bring some uh, some media crew from Sydney down to Creswell, yeah. <laughs> we call that 500-foot coastal? 500-foot on the dot. No Victor lower. One. Victor 1, that's the one. <laughs> it was magnificent, and I um, I have to give full credit to the guy that was hanging on the skids while... Uh, well, we took off. I thought, bloody hell, is he coming come yeah. all the way to Nara hanging out there? Well, they get all the credit because they're hanging out the side and we're the ones up the front doing all the work. So I don't, I'm not sure how that works. So, um, Jack, what's your uh, rank? You are sub-lieutenant? Lieutenant, yeah, lieutenant. that's right, yeah. And how long have you been in the Navy? Uh, so I've been in nearly seven years now. Yeah. And did you join with the intention of being an aviator? I did, yes. Yeah. So I went to university first. That was sort of my career path to get into the Navy and join straight as an aviator, yeah. So you didn't go through ADFA? No. 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 And uh, why the Navy and not the Air Force or the Army or airlines or...? Well, it's funny, I was a commercial fisherman before I joined the Navy, yeah, okay. so I guess that that led me into wanting to work with ships, work with boats and, and be in the maritime environment. So I knew from the get-go that I wanted to be in the Navy and that was the, the career path that I shot for. So what were your early experiences with aviation that... Um, did you have any um, role models or? Um, not really. I, I was just a typical boy, I suppose. I was always interested in cars, planes, motorbikes, those sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't really until I, I got to university that I decided to really go down the aviation path. I wasn't even 100% sure what I wanted to do outside of when I left high school. Um, so one thing led to another and everything sort of fell into place and here I am today. And yeah. now you're flying the big kahuna. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's a big beast, isn't it? Um, had you been in a helicopter before you signed up to be a aviator? I, I hadn't done any lessons, but I'd gone on joy flights, yeah. Okay. Um, I'd done a lot of lessons on fixed-wing aircraft. We're talking Cessnas, small aircraft like that. Yeah. But helicopters are inherently expensive to hire. Yeah, I know. So most people just go with fixed-wing and then and then change over later on to helicopters. Um, and so where did you do your flying in fixed-wing? Uh, down in Geelong. So Geelong boy. Who with? Born and bred. Uh, they had a, it was basically the Geelong, Geelong Flying Club. School, which yeah. is closed down and now. And it's closed down now, yeah. yeah, yeah. I only found out that, that myself when I went home recently, so. So did you get through to your unrestricted or how far through? No, no, I didn't. Look, I only put enough hours in, uh, I guess, to show that I had interest in yeah. aviation so that when I went for the final board in the military, they saw that I'd actually put in a little bit uh, and, and was genuinely interested. So you knew when you joined the Navy that you'd been selected for pilot? Uh, yes, yeah, exactly right, yeah. Okay, and so how long have you been flying now, flying the helicopters? So initial training is about a year, year and a half, and then we start flying after that. So I guess that works out at roughly, you know, five and a half years I've been flying for, and that includes flying training as well. Yeah. yeah. So you did a year at sea? first? Uh, yeah, so our initial training is actually here at Creswell where we're yep. standing at the moment uh, and that's six months and then we go basically from there straight to flight training. Okay. Um, that takes us through the RAF training system, yep. that's what Navy pilots do as well and then at the end we branch off and go um, 
helicopter aviation. I have been to sea, not for a year, uh, but as part of flying the squirrel helicopter at another squadron, I've, I've been to sea for about three or four months on that. What ship did this, were you on? Uh, that was HMAS Darwin. And yeah. where did you go? A good trip, actually. We went uh, up through the Pacific, went through Guam, up to Japan, and we operated with the, with the Americans with their fleet. Uh, we've got a huge fleet, obviously, based out of Japan there, um, and it was a fantastic experience. Did you get to use that classic line, all stations Guam? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what films that out of? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I know the one you're talking about. No, I didn't, unfortunately. We didn't fly at Guam, but it would have been great. <laughs> so what role does the MRH-90 that's what we call it, don't we? MRH-90, yeah. What's, what do you call it for short? Um, yeah. yeah, that is the short name. <laughs> it's the multi-role helicopter 90, and it's obviously abbreviated to the MRH-90. Yeah. Uh, the roles that it, that it fulfills for Navy, um, it's called maritime support. So maritime support but for But the us, Army have got them as well. So yeah, they do, yeah. I thought that was a brilliant piece of decision-making. Yeah, well, I guess the, the uh, reasoning behind all that was the Australian Defence Force wanted to reduce the number of airframe types it had mm -hmm. to improve cost yep. and its efficiency. Parts and services. Exactly yeah. right. And so, that, yes, the Army has this. They have a lot more than we do. Um, but we have six that have replaced our seeking helicopters. And as I said, we use them for maritime support. What that means is we resupply ships at sea uh, with either, you know, medic it could be anything, medical supplies, food. Um, it could be personnel transfers from yeah. ship to ship or ship to shore. It doesn't really matter. And the secondary role of the helicopter is search and rescue. Yeah. yeah. And what's the uh, sexiest thing you've done with it? <laughs> What's your war story when you're old in the nursing home? You're going to say, I remember that time. Yeah, I don't know. Look, I mean, I've only been flying the helicopter for about a year, so okay. uh, I haven't really done anything noteworthy. I, I guess saved anybody? No, no, unfortunately not. We operated off HMAS Chules, which is an Australian warship, uh, for a little while there, and that was probably um, the most memorable time that I've had on the helicopter, yeah. Yeah, good. Where was that? Uh, so that, that pretty much was left out of town and operated within, you know, 500 kilometres of the coast. Yep. Up, up north there. Um, and so, what's life like at sea for the air crew? Because I know um, the sailors, they're four hours on and four hours off, aren't they? And they get yeah. pretty stuffed by the time they get to where they're going. Correct, yeah. You guys would, like most aviators, have minimum crew rest of, is it eight hours? Yeah, that's right. Between yeah. flights. So, how do you sit down to breakfast with uh, all those hairy sailors? Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it does get a bit hairy, pardon the pun, actually. Well, obviously, we operate to uh, fairly stringent crew rest timelines. Um, I guess aviation is inherently dangerous and although we cop a lot of stick from it for it from all of the crew on the ship you know that we get our, our crew rest and whatnot um, I think it's for the most part it's all in good fun because people understand that um, to operate a helicopter things can go wrong very quickly yeah uh, and you really do have to have your wits about you could so. you have saved that bit of information till we got back uh, yeah. <laughs> you're gonna fly me home tonight <laughs> yes yeah well it was another crew actually so oh, yeah, it? yeah okay. big brand new crew all right judge us against one another so, so uh, it'd be pretty hard to beat that flight up the coast it was magnificent no yeah i mean looking out at the moment there's not a cloud in the sky it's probably 25 degrees and the sun's obviously out and the bay was beautiful and smooth and clear so yeah. um is there uh much uh, envy pilot envy when given that you guys are when you strut off to your helicopter on the ship you mean yeah um, well, I don't know. I mean, I think it would be a little bit arrogant to say yes, but I think a lot of people are interested in aviation. They don't necessarily get, get the opportunity to talk with aviators because a ship generally doesn't have a flight on board. Yeah. So when we do get on board, you get two types of people. The people that don't want to know you 
but the other people that are genuinely interested yes. and uh, may want to say um, pursue that career eventually. Yeah. Yeah. So there is interest. Um, I was at a cocktail party on a ship once and I was chatting to this fellow and I said, what do you do on the ship? And he said, I'm a chopper pilot. I said, well, that's funny because there's no choppers on this ship. <laughs> and he said, ah, oh, it pulls the chicks. <laughs> he goes, the girls only ever want to talk to the helicopter pilots. <laughs> Is that right? Gosh, well, we, I've that found... That was 30 years ago. Does it, it still work? No, it doesn't. I mean, I'm married now, happily married too, in case my wife listens to this, but um, no, it generally doesn't because people think you're a liar. So we, we just end up not using that line at all and just going for the standard stuff. <laughs> um, so now what can these things, that, what's naval aviation capable of? What do you, um, what's it used for? Yeah, I guess the naval, naval aviation is broken into two areas. One's warfare, which is um, the, the Seahawk helicopter. Mm-hmm. Their job really is, is to find submarines, which yep. is a huge threat, a naval threat. Uh, and us, and we uh, think of us like a big bus really. Yeah. We can provide any type of support, carry things from A to B, doesn't matter what it is, whether it's troops and, like I said before, uh, food, medical supplies and whatnot, mm. um, and search and rescue as well. So have you done any search and rescue? No, you haven't, not yet? Uh, no, not personally. The squadron has, yes, but uh, not personally, no. Yeah. Okay. Anything else you'd like to tell the audience, all the wannabe Navy pilots? Because everybody wants to fly a helicopter i just know yeah, that yeah well, <laughs> i've wanted to do it since i was about five look it's a great it is a great career move um it's tough work it takes a long time to i guess get to this position as a yeah. captain on an mrh 90 as i said you know it's taken me it took me about five and a half years mm. but very well worth it and i always find that the harder something is uh, the more rewarding it is as well so if there's any i guess if there's any kids sort of wanting to be a pilot or a helicopter pilot in the military work hard at school mm. um make sure you do the right subjects and um, that's pretty much it yeah um is the uh, aerial capabilities of the navy expanding uh or is it changing or not not really expanding i suppose we we have the same number of airframe types uh Mm -hmm. we're shortly getting another aircraft type which is uh the romeos the seahawk romeo variant Uh, i guess from that perspective it is expanding um but our jobs will remain the same. One will always hunt, uh, hunt submarines and one will always be used as a utility helicopter, yeah. yeah. And there's no swapping between the two? For pilots? Yeah. Not. Will you be out hunting submarines in a few years? Not traditionally. No, okay. If you stream down one area, Yeah. your expertise is kept in that area, Yeah. typically. Um, and now with, there's 19 other navies here isn't there for this exercise yeah in fact yeah i think it was yeah 18 to 20 i last checked on the website and so website how many other helicopter pilots any of them bring helicopters with them i don't know it's a good question i know that uh there's a lot of australian aircraft whether it's military or civilian yeah i don't know whether any of the ships have brought their own helicopters with them i think a couple of the american ships apparently have helicopters (laughs) to go and get the burgers that's right that's right you're looking forward to the flight, uh, the demonstration in the harbour during the week? Yeah, yeah. it should, should be great. It's not often we get to operate with other squadrons, uh, particularly in formation. Mm. Uh, and it's definitely a different dynamic when you've got helicopters as small as a squirrel yeah. operating with an 11-tonne helicopter like the MRH-90. So yeah. very challenging, very re- rewarding as well. What yeah. are the challenges of flying with the little guys and all those different... How long have you been training for that? Routine is it like a dance routine? You know? Uh, no, no. So the squirrels do a, a, a dancing routine, if you like. It's just a two-ship formation, uh, sort of a dramatic display that they do. But I guess the challenges with 
small aircraft and big aircraft in the same formation are spacing. Yeah. It's very difficult to work out how far you are from another aircraft because you're dissimilar types. Yeah. Um, with helicopters, if you touch once, you only yeah, touch you're once. You're done. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, usually we put the squirrels at the front. They're the slowest. Yeah. So that if you put a fast helicopter at the front of a formation, it takes the lead with everybody else behind. Yeah. So. Um, the aircraft types. And how long until you finish your return of service? When will you be able to Yeah, so it's 10 years. Go. 10 years okay, for a Navy so you've only got a few from, yet left. Yeah, probably three three years to go. A little bit more maybe. Um, Are we allowed to ask what's next or will you stay on? Or? Yeah, honestly, I don't know. What's the lifespan of a helicopter pilot, like the career? Just depends. Yeah, some people get out after 10 years um, and other people stay on and know climb the ranks and do a more management administration type of role yeah. a lot of people have asked me and honestly I don't know what I'll do um, it depends on a, a lot of factors really but the military is a good lifestyle so it's something to consider so when your time is up um, like your 10 years will you then be taken off the helicopters or is there a point yeah. where you there is flying yeah. cuts out yeah generally we try and cycle people through ground jobs yeah administration style roles and they can feed back into the flying system with expertise mm. uh, writing um, SOPs and, and those sorts of things but if I go down say the qualified flying instructors route now I've got three years to go yeah. almost probably if I stay on we'll be flying for another few years oh, great. after that 10 years as well mm. what's the career options once you if you decide to get out what sort of work would you be looking for would you be still wanting yeah. to... Is it hard hard gig to follow? Uh, it probably would be. Obviously not having done it, I wouldn't know whether it's a hard gig or not, but uh, we're generally only open to other helicopter positions such as, you know, rescue-style helicopters yeah. or oil rigs. It's CHC is one of, the, one of the names that does that. Um, but fixing jobs are quite sort of hard to come by, yeah. especially when a lot of civvy guys may fly a few thousand hours in Cessnas or you know a twin engine small twin engine fixed wing and they're well in front of us yeah. uh, when it comes to being selected for that job even though we may have done 1500 2000 hours on a 10 ton 11 ton <laughs> helicopter so well thanks for talking to me Jack yeah, no it's drama been lovely. Well, thank you very much okay bye well I thought I heard the captain say tomorrow is our sailing day Captain Brett Chandler who's the commanding officer of HMAS Creswell down here at Jarvis Bay and uh, welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under thanks for talking to me Captain Chandler that's okay more than happy to <laughs> we'll call him Brett because I've we, knew, we were mates a long time ago for a short time um, Brett you've got one of the most highly regarded positions in the Navy is there any particular aspect of your background or career that positioned you for this? Well, that's interesting. I'm glad you think it's the highest uh, and most uh, respected <laughs> position in the Navy. There might be some that differ, but it is an excellent job. Um, now, look, I, I think like most uh, like most Navy careers, uh, you do a range of variety of things. Um, and uh, I was very glad to come here. It certainly, in terms of the role of training naval officers at the Royal Australian Naval College, I had not much had direct experience except when I was one. Uh, but uh, now returning, it's been a fantastic job. But I think each officer brings a different group of experience here to, to take into making and shaping the new generations of naval officers. And how's it changed since you were a midshipman here 30 years ago? It's an entirely different program. In, in those days, we didn't have the Australian Defence Force Academy. And so you used to come here for a number of years and commence your university studies or do other academic studies. 
Um, with the start of the Australian Defence Force Academy, uh, the college reconfigured itself to provide professional military training. So we do a 20-week course in which we take people off the street and we, we go through a process of militarising them. We try and make them understand what it is to be in the military. And then we use a phrase called marinise them, not marinating, <laughs> but marinising them, where we get them used to being in the Navy. And at the end of that 20 weeks, they either go off into the fleet to start their their tra training for their specialisations, aviation, submarine, surface, or they go to ADFA and commence their academic training. So our audience are um, aviation fans who would assume that everybody that comes through your door wants to fly is that the case or are, are the pilot wannabes just like a small percentage of your recruits or how does that work is it a tough uh, lot of competition to get into the into it, the air it, it, it is it is quite competitive um, and there are a different set of selection procedures for for aviators both uh, physically eyesight and, and selection procedures to others um, look all aviators come here. We train everyone to be a, a naval officer initially. So whether you're an aviator with your surface, you come here and you learn to be a naval officer. Um, it, they are a minority. Uh, certainly the majority is the surface surface fleet. But uh, we do have a consistently consistent stream of aviators and they all come through here. And uh, I've worked with uh, many over the years. And uh, like any organisation, some are fun, some aren't. <laughs> What attributes do you specifically look for in an avi in a Navy pilot? And are you part of the selection process? No, I'm not, and I actually think that's quite a good thing. Then That way I have no preconceptions about any individual that comes here. Uh, they are a, a blank canvas, so to speak, when they come here, which I think is a good thing. Um, aviators, specific skills. Um, obviously, hand-eye coordination and uh, an ability to think quickly and under pressure. That's not vastly different from a lot of the skills that we need uh, in naval officers in general, whether you're uh, in surface ships or even if you're a logistician. Um, but uh, certainly it's, it's that visual acuity and that hand-eye coordination that the recruiters look for. What percentage of your intake uh, aviators? I've never actually done, well, I haven't actually pulled apart the figures, but I think it's probably in the vicinity of about 10 to 15%. Of all the faces that come through the door, what percentage of those would graduate from here? Um, we we would prefer no one to fail. Um, <laughs> there are, of course, uh, a number of reasons why people leave. Some people join early and realise very quickly that the Navy is not for them and uh, we, we allow them to discharge at their own request because if they don't want to be in the Navy, there's not much point them being here. Mm. Um, then further on, we find people tend to, uh, some people tend to struggle with the leadership and the teamwork and the direction capabilities, leading under stress. Um, but overall, we have a pass rate between about 85 and 90% of personnel because we, we screen quite vigorously before people come. We've got 18-year-olds who have probably just left home. And um, Is there anything in your own background, do you think, that has prepared you for that role of... I have 18 year olds. Of sending. <laughs> I have my own 18 year olds. Oh, do you? Of course I do. <laughs> is, there, is there any aspect to that that appealed to you with this job? You like the idea of getting the new recruits or. Um, and shaping people to come into the Navy. It's about setting the values and behaviours. It's largely a behavioural value type training that you do. Mm. I think that's really important. It is also the one I think that gives you the best personal satisfaction, particularly when you take someone that you see maybe struggling a little bit and having a bit of difficulty getting through the process but with a lot of mentoring and discussion and leadership by divisional officers and staff uh, they come through they may not be the best performing but in some ways the person that's come through 
had a bit of a hard time, successfully passes is the most rewarding as opposed to someone who, who just sails through the training. Um, I, I personally find that quite rewarding. It gives you your highest highs sometimes and your lowest lows when you see someone that you think could do well, doesn't. Um, so I think it's true probably of anyone that, that has an exposure to training. Um, you actually find it quite rewarding. It's a very personally rewarding and something that you see you get a direct feedback from. How does your 18-year-old like having a father who knows all about it? <laughs> well, like any 18-year-old, of course, he knows more. He, he just listens to, to what I say on occasion from time to time. Um, but it does give you, you, know, you do see, you do see attitudes uh, in the young trainees sometimes that you see in your son um, and you have the conversations with them sometimes that you have with your son. That's quite interesting. You asked me a while ago about what one, what is the difference from 30 years ago. Well, mm. 30 years ago when we all joined, we were all young men essentially, very few women coming through. Um, we now have uh, about 20% women coming through. And because of the way we structure ourselves, our trainees range in age from 17 up to 53 we've had in here. So it's a very different game. It's not all about young, young men and women. Some people mm. have come in and rejigged after initial to career. Mm. or have got to a, to a point in their life that they've, they've changed their direction and wanted to join the Navy. So it, it, it's quite challenging. So sometimes I'm talking to people that are much my peer group. Mm. Sometimes I'm talking to a 17-year-old. <laughs> but that, that's just part of the fun of the, fun of the game. <laughs> Thanks for talking to us, Brett. Well, there we go, Cathy. I tell you what, it's a small world when you uh, get out there and it turns out that the base commander there at Creswell was somebody that uh, you knew on the social scene several years ago. Yeah, Brett was, um, when I first met him, he was um, just a midshipman. I think he'd just joined up with an old school friend of mine. And so when they came down to Cerberus in, just out of Melbourne to do some training, I was living in Melbourne. And so they used to come to parties and whatnot. And then soon after that, I was in Singapore and I bumped into Brett at a cocktail party on a Canadian ship. Yeah, he was on exchange with the Canadians for a year and they sailed into Singapore. So we were pretty happy to see each other because I think we, we both sat there as an island of sobriety and amongst the madness that was this party. And um, I said to him, Brett, what's it like being with the Canadians? What are they like, you know? And he, compared to the Australians, and he said, I always thought the Australians were pretty mad, but um, he said, these Canadians are wild. And I said, oh, really? What do you mean? And then just as he, just as I asked him that, we both looked up because we were kind of leaning on our elbows sitting, sitting down. We looked up and there's three guys hanging by their feet from the pipes along the roof of the wardroom, sculling beer. <laughs> and I just looked up and we both just laughed. And I thought, yeah, I'll see what you mean. <laughs> fair enough, fair but, enough. Um, yeah, so i never seen him since then. But, yeah, we just ha- we had a mutual friend. Yeah, yeah fantastic. Now, I, I've got to ask you, what's, what's the sensation like getting up in this helicopter? Is there a real feeling of power? I've actually not had a lot of experience riding in helicopters, although at Ozfly I got a ride in a Jet Ranger and it was an interesting sensation uh, for me. That's probably only the second time I've been in a helicopter. But uh, I would imagine getting up in a military machine, uh, you know, there would be a huge sense of power just from those huge uh, turbine engines. It was an incredibly powerful feeling, but it was also incredibly smooth. So um, I felt incredibly comfortable in it, as opposed to being a little Robbie or something where you kind of feel like you're in an egg beater being chucked around. But no, it was a very smooth ride all the way down and all the way back. Beautiful, and especially with the door open, with the um, the view and sitting there with my feet on the edge of the edge of the floor, and I thought, you know, the only thing missing here really is the cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the navy doesn't provide in-flight service? <laughs> Not on this occasion. 
But, um, yeah, it was was fantastic. And, you know, even when they landed at Watson and um, the, is it the loadmaster they call them, the guys who hang out and check underneath that there's no obstructions? Yeah, daredevils, I think, would be a good word. <laughs> I just thought, what a great job this would be. And, uh, yeah, I was pretty impressed, actually. I think it's a very different Navy to the one that my friends entered, you know, 30 years ago. Lots, uh, lots has changed in that time. Mm-hmm. And my son actually... When he wanted to be a pilot, I said, you're not joining the Navy and you're not joining the Army. You have to go in the Air Force. And then I came back from now and I said, oh, you know, I think the Navy would be pretty good. <laughs> well, there you go. You might have to get up there. You know, we should mention that your son is, uh, you know, training to be an Air Force officer at the moment. So, well, maybe you might have to get up there and pull some strings, Cathy, and, uh, you know, get him in that white uniform instead of the blue one. I think I'll just leave him alone, Steve, and keep out of his way. <laughs> he told me this morning that he um, he thinks he's a, I don't know, they've changed the rules or something and he's a commissioned officer. I said, what does that mean? And he said, oh, apart from when I'm at ADFA, people salute and call you sir. And I said, oh, I'll have to practice that. I don't know how your grandfather's going to cope with it, though. <laughs> <laughs> Gee we. He said, I don't think I'll tell him either. <laughs> oh, well, fantastic. All right, so, Kathy, uh, Kathy writing, Kathy Maxted writing in photography on Facebook. Now, how are we going? Are we getting more followers on your Facebook page now? I don't know, Steve. I'm too busy writing to be bothered looking at it. <laughs> um, I've been pretty busy lately. I did a, went to Alice and I did three stories up there for AOPA, for Auspilot, on remote flying. And I've done a profile on Jack Wadey, the chopper pilot, for Auspilot for the next issue as well. And I've done a story from the desert for Slow Magazine on a choir and it's all over the place. One minute I'm helicopters, the next minute I'm African gospel singers and Last week I interviewed a criminologist, and and of course naturally you've been you know you've been uh, interviewing one of uh, Victoria's leading show chefs, my wife, Kathy oh, Fisher. I've got her lined up for the jam making competition. Yes, yes, she's uh, actually as we as we record this, she's actually out in the kitchen making jam for that show. <laughs> As should I be. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, people can catch up with you at uh, kathymexted.com.au and they can uh, find you on Twitter. Where do we find you? Are you still tweeting? Oh, I tweet every now and again. I was tweeting from that helicopter, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> look at me, look at me. Everybody look at me. <laughs> and that's Carscribe, K-A-S-C-R-I-B-E on Twitter. That's right. Thanks, Kathy. I'm glad you uh, managed to get out there on that flight and uh, thanks for those two fantastic interviews. We'll catch you again soon. Thanks, Steve. I couldn't believe that you guys let me go. It was very good of you. Bye. Well, that's all we have here from the studio. Let's head back out to uh, Melbourne's Tullamarine Airport now and talk all things Jetstar and 787. David Hall, welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. Thank you very much. Mate, you're the uh, CEO of uh, Jetstar for Australia and New Zealand. Yes. Yeah. And I imagine you've been quite involved in getting the uh, 787 up and yeah, running. Yeah, we're really, really excited to see it here today. Um, the, the, the reality is now real. The dream is now reality. It's coming on to the Air Operator Certificate for the Australian and New Zealand business. So we're just working through the final regulatory uh, processes around all of that. And uh, we hope to have it into service operating up and down the eastern seaboard uh, very soon before we launch into from Melbourne to Denpasar come mid-December. So, Can you tell us a bit about that certification process? It's obviously been a long road, this being first of type. And we know some Dreamliners had a few issues, for example, with batteries overseas. How has CASA been about that sort of thing? Yeah, look, we've worked, we've worked very well with CASA. We've got a great relationship with the regulator. They need to do what they do, and we certainly respect what, what they do. We've had a, a large team, an entry into service team, working for many, many months, uh, you know, well over a year now as it sort of stop-start over the time, and worked very closely with CASA to ensure that 
we are compliant, we're regulatory, uh, alignment with everything we need to do to ensure it's inducted safely into the fleet and it is very compliant. Safety and compliance leadership are number one priorities for Jetstar and it's a strong collaborative relationship with CASA. They keep us honest, they keep us on our toes and that's, that's really good and that's very important that as the regulator that they are happy and we would only be happy when they're happy and that they've put us through our paces to ensure the safe passage of our crew and our customers. Excellent. Now, uh at first, it looked like Qantas was going to lead with a 787 and Jetstar would adopt as well. Now it's Jetstar leading. Qantas haven't really got it. I understand they've put their, their whole 787 prep on hold for the moment. So you've had to pick up all the burden. You've had to establish the, the training patterns. Have you, have you established a simulator here? Look, it, 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 it's certainly not been a burden. It's been an absolute pleasure to yeah. do. It was always planned that the, the 8 Series would come into Jetstar and that they may eventually move back into Qantas. The 8s are staying in Jetstar now. Uh, Qantas have a large number of uh, options and purchase rights on further Dreamliners. Uh, we were back when the board approved the business case for Jetstar International back in 2005-2006. It was always that these aircraft would be coming to Jetstar. We're very fortunate that our parent granted us the A330s to use in the interim and now we've got these coming in. The A th these will replace the A330s which will then go in back into Qantas. It'll help Qantas renew its fleet and it'll have one of the youngest fleets, I think, in Qantas's history, which is great. And we're delighted to be the carrier of choice for the Qantas group in bringing the airline, being the Dreamliner, the 800 series into Jetstar. It's quite an honour, isn't it? It is a great honour. We're very proud. We've earned the right. We've worked hard at it. Yep. We've got great people. We worked very collaboratively with Qantas to ensure that our standards is a separate ASC. Uh, are the, exactly the same as Qantas standards and rigour and processes and Qantas has worked alongside us as we've inducted these aircraft alongside CASA, the Jetstar team, the Qantas team and, and other regula uh, regulators and of course Boeing and, uh, and GE whose engines are operating on them. And uh, do you ha are you going to have a simulator here in Australia for the 7 8s? We will, yes, that was announced a couple of months back. The Alan Joyce, Jane Herdlicker and, uh, and the Premier announced that there will be a simulator based out at Airport West it's a huge investment for Victoria. It's great, uh, and that will be suitable for both Qantas and for Jetstar. So we're delighted that uh, we'll get the simulator to match the aircraft here. A lot of our pilots are currently being trained in Seattle and Singapore. It'd be great to have them trained on the simulator and have that here in Airport West in Victoria. Now, obviously, bringing this one in, it's the first one here, and there's going to be more to follow, I believe, another 13 of them. What sort of routes would we expect to see them operating on? Yeah, essentially, the, the Dreamliner replaces the A330. So it'll replace the existing routes. Whereas we get more deliveries, anything, yeah, we've got 10 330s at the moment. So delivery 11 onwards, the next 11, 12, 13, 14, 40% increase in capacity. We'll look at routes then, and that'll largely depend on where the demand is. Uh, having a fleet of this size, having the flexibility and agility that Jetstar does, we can uh, timely and decisively move, move aircraft around to match with market demand. So they'll be inducted over the next 12 to 18 months. By 2015, all 14 should be here. And we'll be looking at markets then that are best suited to the route that we can offer the lowest fares and the greatest customer proposition. Now, speaking of these aircraft going into the air, we have a lot of aircraft enthusiasts that listen to our program and they're yeah. going to be wanting to know where the route proving flights are going. I believe they're heading up towards the Gold Coast. Can you confirm what Yeah, we've, we've announced earlier that uh, they'll be heading up to the Gold Coast and to Cairns for the proving flights, uh, initially proving flights. Then once, we, once it's on our AOC, our Air Operator Certificate, we'll be able to sell commercial flights and that will help us get the, hour, the crew hours up for the pilots and for the cabin crew. So we'll be able to uh, leverage commercial flights, post the proving flights and 
post our satisfaction and the satisfaction of CASA, we'll then be able to launch commercial flights on the eastern seaboard. And once we've got the hours up and are satisfied, we'll then be able to launch international services from probably mid-December, certainly before Christmas. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure most of our uh, audience will be out there with their cameras trying to get shots. Oh, it's exciting. There's a lot of us yeah. out there with our cameras yeah, oh, today too. We saw a lot I of the crew. <laughs> I think it's amazing for the Australian aviation industry. Yeah. We're very proud at Jetstar to have the aircraft coming in today. We're very proud to be the, the carrier, the largest low-fares carrier in Australia that's transforming Australian aviation and continue to transform and pioneer long-haul aviation with a low-fares carrier. David, thank you very much for Been coming a delight. Thanks a lot for coming out today, guys. Thank you. Jeremy Schmidt, lead pilot for the uh, 787 for Jetstar. Welcome to Plane Crazy. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Cool. Now, uh, you've just uh, had a rather long flight in from Honolulu. Yeah, it was about a 10-hour 30 sector. Um, we got up very early this morning, Hong Honolulu time. Um, but because it's such a beautiful aeroplane with a lower cabin altitude and high humidity, we've got off feeling really fresh and ready to go. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot different than a normal aeroplane. Not quite as uh, tired and, and uh, jet-lagged at the end? Huh? Definitely definitely not. No, I think you could ask anyone who got off today, uh, and we're all feeling very comfortable. Excellent. So... Uh Quite a bit of effort to get everyone on the pilot front ready to go on the 787. Are you able to give us an overview of uh, what you've been involved in? It's For me, it's been about a two-and-a-half-year project. Um, for most of our team, a solid 18 months at least on this project. Uh, a huge effort, updating manuals, uh, getting instruments of approval through CASA, working very closely with the regulator, training our pilots, training engineers, uh, ground staff, cabin crew. Uh, it's, it's just been all up a, a huge effort by a lot of people in the organisation. A lot of manuals and paperwork to prepare. Yeah, we have, um, you know, we have uh, specific teams working on the manuals, but um, they still have to go into the regulator, get approved and come back, so it's a lot of work. What's, uh, what's your background in aviation? Where have you come from to get to here? Well, originally general aviation years ago, but um, more recently I have worked for various airlines, ANSET uh, Airlines and also Qantas for a while, and more recently, obviously, Jetstar. So what were you flying before the 787, and what was the conversion like? I was flying the Airbus A320 for Jetstar, and, and uh, look, I have flown the Boeings before, so it wasn't a, a very difficult transition at all. It was, um, I did my training up in Seattle with uh, one of the regulator pilots, and uh, it was a very good course, and um, it was quite easy. It's an easy aeroplane to fly. Um, with the latest technology, so it, it makes the pilot's job a lot easier. When you're comparing it to other Boeing types that you've flown, then you say it's very easy. Does it have a similar feel, or is it a completely different feel from a pilot's perspective? Yeah, I guess I haven't flown a wide-body Boeing before, so when I'm when I'm talking about, I'm, I'm comparing it to things like a 737. Um, it's got new functionality, such as a head-up display, so we can look out the window a lot more. Um, it's got the electronic flight bag, so we don't have to carry the paper charts around. It's got bigger displays, it's got a vertical uh, situation display. So all these extra in instrumentation um, that makes your job a lot easier as a pilot. And the heads-up display must be an interesting thing to get used to when you first look at it, when you've got all that information overlaid. I know when the demonstrator was here, we got a chance to look through it. It was fantastic, the, the transparency of it with all that information. Uh, had that feel the first few times you tried that? Yeah, look, I, th I think we judge each other by when you're looking across at the pilot, the other pilot learning, you see where his eyes are. And to start with, yes, you go back to your conventional scan, which is down low at the uh, 
the, the primary displays down lower. But after probably one or two sessions in the simulator, you just drive yourself to look through the HUD and it's so much clearer and easier and a, a great device to be using. Certainly the way of the future. We've seen it in some of the business jets that we've been on. Oh, OK, yeah. It's all been incorporated. And look, the dual, it's dual HUD in this comes as standard, so I think that's um, something from now on that most uh, manufacturers will, will be uh, incorporating. It certainly makes it easy to shoot an ILS down to minimas and you're looking right where you're supposed to. Exactly, yeah. And you've got, um, even in a crosswind, it tells you exactly uh, where to look. So you're, you're not sort of searching for the runway out of the cloud and the mist and the rain. You you know exactly where the runway threshold and the and the touchdown zone is. Does it put uh, synthetic vision and enhanced vision through it or is it just primarily your um, flight display? It's just a repeat of the flight display. But, um, yeah, it's, it's very um, easy to use. So it, it doesn't take long to adjust. When you're standing up a program for a new aircraft like this, how much can you borrow from, from older types and how much of this was new? Uh, look, I, I guess a lot of the just the pure manipulation is from the older types. So you're, you're transferring a lot of your, your previous learnings, um, you know, flare, flare heights and, and all of those sort of things. You, you know instinctively, um, you know, how to fly the aeroplane. It's just learning those new systems that probably takes a couple of... Um, simulator sessions and a couple of line training flights to, to, to learn, but it's very easy to adapt. And approach speeds are sort of similar to other aircraft you're flying? Yeah. Very similar, yeah. yeah. Plus a lot of uh, hitting the books for systems awareness. It's like learning all those systems all over again, yeah? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a comprehensive course. It's a 21-day course, and it's um, uh, you've got exams, obviously, throughout it. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's intense, but um, manageable. Everybody's getting through it, so that's good. How about your involvement with the uh, line proving and bringing all the, all the uh, pilots back here up to speed? I, t- I take it they're all being trained over in Seattle and Singapore at the moment? Mainly in Singapore. Um, a couple of us went through Seattle, as I said. But, uh, um, yeah, look, uh, the, 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 the most uh, fun I've had is actually going to Seattle and doing the customer flights and then the training flights over in Seattle. Uh, that's when we finally got to use the skills we've been learning and and uh, we had cabin crew on board and, and other pilots learning, so it was just a, an amazing experience. And now we'll transfer that back to our team back here and get them on the aeroplane out flying. Yeah, we've already been speaking to David Hall about uh, where it's going to be going up the eastern seaboard and all the guys will probably be out there with the cameras getting ready to shoot, so yeah, sure. you're ready to wave out the window? I will. <laughs> probably a silly question, I imagine, is uh, much competition for uh, getting slots on the uh, on the Dreamliner now amongst Jetstar pilots? There is, actually. It's a good question because we're transferring our wide-body A330 pilots across um, and predominantly we're taking the pilots from Melbourne and Sydney because that's kind of roughly where the aeroplane's starting um, and eventually it'll replace the uh, other A330s up on the Gold Coast and Cairns. So, um, yeah, the guys up in, in Cairns or Queensland, I should say, are probably, you know, getting a bit itchy feet to come down and learn, but uh, they could always relocate to Melbourne, of course. Well, yeah. you know, we have much better weather here, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't too bad today. <laughs> uh, that, that's awesome, mate. Well, thank you very much. No uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Congratulations on bringing her back, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing more in the skies. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. Cool. Gordon Rich Phillips, welcome back to Playing Crazy Down Under. Great to be back on this, uh, this fantastic day. Yeah, very auspicious day, the first uh, Jetstar 787 arrival in Melbourne. We're delighted to uh, see the Dreamliner coming into Melbourne uh, this afternoon. Uh, obviously, we're very pleased to secure Melbourne as the home of Jetstar's uh, Dreamliner fleet. Uh, the announcement made uh, earlier this year with uh, an investment of $100 million in capital by uh, Jetstar and creation of 100 jobs around the, uh, the Dreamliner, and now to see the aircraft on the ground today is fantastic. Absolutely, because uh, that was our big concern 
concern with uh, everything shutting down here and being pulled away on the Qantas side, but Jetstar's stepped in and the base will remain. Look, it's certainly uh, you know, one of the reasons we're so keen to see the Dreamliner here is this is very much about the future. Uh, it's, it's a new aircraft with new technology, introducing composites into service. Of course, uh, a large part of the Dreamliner, uh, certainly trailing edge components, are manufactured here in Melbourne. Uh, we already have capability in uh, composite manufacturing. Uh, with the aircraft being based here, we'll now get uh, capability in composite uh, uh, MRO activities and, of course, uh, the crewing uh, uh, the crewing and staffing that goes with that as well. So it's a great story for Victoria. Oh, yeah. With Boeing being based here, was that a, a real factor for being able to get this pitch to uh, Jetstar to get it here? We think it's very it's very significant for us because we've got a workforce that's grown by around 600 people uh, at Boeing over the last couple of years, uh, manufacturing not only for the Dreamliner but also for uh, much of the rest of the Boeing uh, uh, fleet, uh, components manufactured here. So we do have a strong capability in that, that new composite area and um, uh, we, th- we see it as, uh, as great synergy to now be moving into maintaining and operating the aircraft as well as manufacturing. As the industry well recognises, composites are different, Uh, the skills required will be different, they're different in manufacturing, they'll be different in in the repair sector and uh, to have those manufacturing skills here to draw upon uh, is going to be very important and uh, uh, this is the first uh, Dreamliner to operate in our region so we've got a great opportunity to build capability here as other uh, Dreamliners come into service in uh, in the Asia-Pacific. Yeah, because I mean Air India is coming through but uh, they've got most their base back at, back at home so but it's good to know that there's a base here that if anything goes wrong with one of the aircraft they can also drop by and get service absolutely it's, it's great to have uh, this is the um, uh, direction uh, for the future in commercial aircraft uh, shifting into into composite structures and it's uh, great to be developing the capability here in victoria apprenticeships is obviously a big thing when you're talking about the composites industry is that something that the government will be helping to assist with getting people trained young people trained to come and work in this industry that's an area where we have a great deal of interest uh, one of the big challenges increasingly and we see this in a number of areas, is attracting young people into an industry like aviation. And the government's uh, currently working to put together some measures to assist in that, to encourage the uptake of aviation uh, among young people. Obviously, uh, uh, increasingly, we see a lot of competition uh, at the the secondary school level to engage young people in future careers, in future industry sectors. And uh, perhaps aviation is not necessarily as exciting uh, as it was, you know, 50 years ago, uh, there's a lot more to, a lot more career opportunities to compete with. That means, uh, as an industry, uh, we need to uh, to lift our offering uh, to demonstrate, uh, uh, you know, to young people that there are a lot of opportunities in aviation, you know, not just in flight crew, but in uh, obviously in, in maintenance, repair, and overhaul, in manufacturing. Uh, there are great opportunities, and we're very keen as a government to be promoting that to young people and uh, and creating that pathway. Gordon, we know you're very busy here today. We can't let you go without asking. Of course, you're a commercial pilot yourself and I know you've taken on a few more portfolios since the last time we talked to you. Have you done much flying? Well I keep my hand in and uh, one of the great things about being Aviation Minister is I do get to travel around the state a lot. Uh, We've done some great things in regional airports around Victoria. Uh, Most recently uh, I was out at Edenhope uh, announcing or actually opening the upgraded airport out at Edenhope and we've done Kahuna and we're doing uh, several throughout the state which is great and uh, it is a good opportunity, a good way to get around and uh, uh, keep the hand in and get around and see what's happening in the industry. Thanks mate, really appreciate your time. 
Well, there you have it, mate. Uh, what a bumper episode that's been, and uh, there's some really good current issues, which is nice to get into an episode. And I've got to <laughs> say, it's interesting the people you see around here that you know. We are talking to uh, Captain uh, Jeremy Smith there for a while. After the interview, I said, you know what? I know you from somewhere, I'm sure. And it turns out, I think, that uh, actually he, uh, when he was talking about doing some GA flying, I think he uh, taught at the same flight school. Well, actually, he confirmed that. He taught at the same flight school at Moorabbin that I learned to fly it. So I'm going to go through my logbook when I get home. I'm pretty <laughs> sure he might have uh, given me a few flying lessons, in fact. <laughs> I have to send him an email if he did. But uh, I had to ask, just after we'd finished that uh, chat with Jeremy, uh, Captain Mark Reinfleisch came over. He's the uh, Jetstar chief pilot. I uh, just came over very quickly to say hi, and uh, it wasn't up for the interview, of course. It was uh, just to say hi. But, uh, yeah, I asked him the big critical question. There are at least four captains on that flight deck, possibly five. I asked him, how was it to have so many captains on the flight deck? It was like, captain, 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 captain. <laughs> and, of course, his comment was, oh, only one mattered. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I think he knew which one he was talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, I was about to say, ah, we're not talking about the pilot flying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got to say, you know, there's been a lot of commentary around about the uh, the Dreamliner, and, of course, it's not been without its problems. Uh, a lot of, uh, you know, people would, would say that... Uh, uh, that's a, t- a terrible thing about Boeing, but of course Airbus has had its fair share of problems when it's bringing in a new aircraft, and we've seen that with the A380, and of course, Grant, nobody would know about that more than Qantas, I guess, uh, <laughs> yeah. back with the incident they had a couple of years ago, but, uh, you know, actually, I think the aircraft, uh, from a from an aesthetic standpoint, is that the word you use? I think yeah. it looks uh, quite nice, actually, in the Jetstar scheme, I think suits it. It does seem to suit it. Uh, it's got a very interesting blunt nose uh, with that design, but I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the Dash 9 in service. I think, like the A380, we'll probably look... A, I like the A380. I think it'll look even better with the uh, extra capacity in it when they upgrade that, because uh, you look at that wing and you know it's going to carry more people. But, uh, yeah, with the 787, I'm looking forward to seeing the Dash 9 uh, in the flesh, because from all I've heard, the extra, um, extra plugs to give it that longer fuselage make it look a little sexier but yeah i didn't i didn't see anything too bad about the dash 8 here today uh, i think it's been great it was great having a chat with uh, david hall the ceo for australia new zealand and uh having a chat with him about uh, the introduction of the eighth uh, sorry introduction of the 787 uh that'd be right just me going to call the yeah. a380 for jetstar i'm just i'm just telegraphing my punches there well it's a dreamliner mate <laughs> yeah well i still reckon we're going to see an a380 in jetstar colors but anyhow that was started two years ago we'll i see don't know about that mate i reckon with the arrival now of the uh, 787 i think that's increasingly less likely but there oh, you go yeah, you never know mate you never, you know. never know you never know well i'll tell you what mate it's, it's been a been a huge day here at the Qantas maintenance center we're sitting out in the car park out the front now trying to shelter out of the wind it's probably been the only thing today that's put a bit of a dampener on things it's been incredibly windy here in melbourne today which is you know part of the course here in melbourne at this time of the year that's the truth but uh you know we'd like to thank uh, jetstar for inviting us down here today and we'd also like to thank our good friends at uh, defense uh, media for once again tolerating us and uh, bringing <laughs> us up there and letting ourselves and kathy Maxted ride around in the uh, military aircraft it's always wonderful when we get that sort of support and get to bring uh, military aviation and of course the, the leading edge now of uh, airline aviation here in australia yep. uh, to our audience and uh, we hope that's of great interest to all of you so yeah thanks to ben wickham at ADF Media. Uh, really appreciate his help in organising a lot of uh, what went on up in Sydney. And uh, yeah, Kate Kennedy down here in Melbourne who helped us out with uh, the HMS Daring. So yeah, it's been a great episode. Really enjoyed uh, bringing all this information to you. It was such a hard job, you know, having to go out there and do all this for our audience, wasn't it? Oh, it's such a hardship, mate. I don't know how we cope. <laughs> so now address the hate mail to contact at plainecrazydownunder.com. Absolutely. And of course, we'd always like to hear from you. Contact at plainecrazydownunder.com. And uh, next time we do an episode, uh, we'll get back into the studio and do a normal one. But uh, I'll 
tell you what, Grant, isn't it nice not to be talking about politics after oh, the last show? Yeah, it's been great. Although we did have some politics in this, uh, but only because uh, Gordon Rich Phillips was on, and uh, he's he's a pilot, so he's okay. No, he's a pilot. He's okay. <laughs> That's exactly right. No but, problem. Uh, yeah, I think our next episode, if we can, is going to be all our Ozfly content. We're still going through that. Uh, Alan Van Page and even Jonesy over in WA, they've been doing some great work editing a lot of the content we recorded so much. Uh, Steve's sitting here with a very smug smile on his face because... It's uh, very nice when other people are doing the editing. I yeah, love it. Yeah, like, uh, I think for this episode, I've done the bulk of the editing, plus Kathy, and of all the, all the naval stuff and the, and the International Fleet Review. Um, I think I might just uh, upload all the uh, 787 stuff for you, mate. Oh, OK, then. All right, then. I suppose I should do some work. I'm going to do a lot of PCDU work lately, so I suppose that's only fair. Yeah. But uh, we're going to wrap it up here from the uh, Qantas Maintenance Base here at uh, Melbourne Airport. It's been a great day. We'll talk to you again soon. But I tell you what, mate, I guess if you're flying around Australia, you're in a Dreamliner right now. Apart from being on Jetstar, you should always remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer, Grant McCarran, and Kathy Mexted. You can follow us on Twitter, at PCDU. And for more information about the team, feedback, storylines you'd like us to follow, and any advertising inquiries, go to our website, plainecrazydownunder.com. Playing Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production.